Do you hear that? That is the sound that you're going to be greeted with when you walk into Backcountry and Beyond here in Salisbury, North Carolina. Our friend Jeff and DeWitt and Jeremy. They're going to give you a standing ovation. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously, they're going to treat you right. You're drinking on something right now. What you drinking on? I'm, I'm drinking on the Beyond portion of Backcountry and Beyond. I'm drinking Black Rifle Coffee's Espresso with Cream Cold Canned Coffee. Uh, it's it's pretty awesome, and really the only place you can get it is Backcountry Beyond. Yeah, and I mean, why would you get it anywhere else when you can go there and get outdoor gear like a Quiet Cat or a stand-up paddleboard, new pair of Costas, Marshware, uh, I mean the, anything. The Biolite lineup, uh-huh. everything they got. Yeah. These Traeger, are all, they got it all. And these are all things that we like, we love here Fit at Three Rivers Land Trust. Oh, yeah. So... Go check them out. They're at the intersection of Ennis Street and I-85 here in Salisbury. And you can go to backcountryandbeyond.com to check them out online. You're listening to Campfire Conversations. Brought to you by Three Rivers Land Trust. Connected to the land. Committed to conservation. Lost Highway Gun Dog Kennels. Focusing on building companion gun dogs for the home and field training pointing dogs, flushers, and retrievers. Outdoor or indoor climate-controlled kennels to suit your needs and budget. Grayson's got a heavy emphasis on training the trainer, training the handler, which I think is something that's often overlooked in the gun dog world. Yeah, I totally agree. Our friend Grayson Geyer, who's the owner of Lost Highway, came on our show, Season 3, Episode 23. If you're interested in getting a gun dog, training your gun dog, I highly recommend you go listen to that episode. After we recorded, I was so impressed I went and scheduled a visit with Grayson to go watch him work with his dog Althea, his retriever Althea, and I was so impressed that I decided right then and there to become a customer. I'm going to be getting a pup from him soon, and not only that, but he's been giving me resources to read and look over so that I can be the best possible trainer. If you're, if you're interested in finding Grayson in Lost Highway, you can find him at www.losthighwaykennels.com, just like the Hank Williams song. Hey Sam, you got any idea? Who's got the largest selection of kayaks, the biggest inventory in the area? Yeah, I've got an idea, but go ahead and tell the people. That's going to be Rock Outdoors. But wait a minute. Rock Outdoors has the best selection of camping gear in the area. How is it possible that one company would have the best selection of camping gear and boating gear? You would think impossible, but it's not. Highway 8 in Lexington, Rock Outdoors, they got it. Rock Outdoors, just a list of the brands they've got. Old Town, Perception, Native, Hobie, Bonafide, which is a North Carolina company. They've got paddle boards and all the boating gear you could think of. What's happening May 1st? May 1st, they're going to have an open house. You know what open house means? Sales. You know what sales mean? Deals. You know what deals means? Gear coming home with you. Rock Outdoors, Highway 8, Lexington. So we're doing a little different deal today than we have done in the past. I think we recorded, we've recorded one or two here on the porch. Haven't we? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're here at uh, my humble abode, and we've got some guests. We're doing everything to maintain governor compliancy with the mandates, and so we're spread out six foot apart. Everybody's uh, not touching anybody. We're not hugging or anything, so we're all safe. I feel I feel super safe, <laughs> so that's good. I'm in a – if you notice a weird tapping now and then, I'm sitting in my favorite rocker, so I, I may make some, some <laughs> background noise. But I was going to tell you before we introduce Sam, everybody, um, I was going to tell you a little quick story. So you remember that? We've talked about it on here before. You remember when I got that uh, 
Yeti bottle from Backcountry and Beyond that I started carrying when I got all the old school camo. Yeah, when I got all mad about plastic bottles. Yeah, litter. Them, sure. Yeah, and so I started toting this bottle around all the time. Like even like before COVID, when you'd go into the gas station and get the big gulp, I wouldn't. I'd just take that in there and get it, which I don't even know if that's okay. And partially stemmed <laughs> from uh, picking up trash on Low Water Bridge Road. Low Water Bridge, and then what really did it was picking up trash at Blue Falls. Oh God, yeah. Uh, you know, we did a we do a lake cleanup down there every year, and mm-hmm. I, I just you know that's the bottom of the drain, man. When you get to <laughs> Blue Falls, every, every and we'll talk about that. But when you get there, all the trash that's where it hits, and so it's just you know depressing. But anyway, so I started carrying this bottle. Well, I've carried it for a little over a year, and it's supposed to be tough. I mean, it's an expensive bottle, and one day I got it out, and the top the handle it's got that little handle like you could hold on to it to whack somebody in the head you know yeah mm-hmm. well that thing was broken and i was super disappointed in it so i talked to jeff at backcountry Bound. i was like dude this is not gonna work out for me what do i do and he said just email yeti which i was i was, I was thinking when he told me that i was like well i'll never see anything out of this deal i emailed them and they're like they emailed me back and said send me some send us some pictures and they wanted like a dozen pictures of this thing so i took pictures of every angle of it broken and sent a little blurb of how disappointed i was with this product <laughs> and well then and this is at 10 o'clock at night on a thursday 10 15 i get a response from a human not an automated thing but an actual person named rick and and I, i'm assuming it was an actual person because it it didn't look like a generic thing because he had read what i typed and he says so sorry to see that you had this this issue mm-hmm. with your rambler lid and such and such and such and such and he said, you know, we don't make that exact Rambler lid anymore, but we're don't worry, we got you covered. I didn't know what that meant. The next Monday, I had a brand new lid sitting on my porch with one of those little caps that makes it easier to drink out of so mm-hmm. it's not sloshing into my mustache Yeah, for free. I was super impressed with that customer service. Yeah, it's awesome. Facilitated by Backcountry and Beyond. Yeah, I wouldn't have known. Mm-hmm. So anyways, if you buy... A Yeti product from Backcountry and Beyond, according to Rick, they got you covered. Yeah, I just, uh, speaking of them, I smoked those hogs that we got last week and uh, had their their dry rub, their honey bacon barbecue dry oh, I rub. That. I haven't tried that. Oh, it's good. And just used that. And then for Valentine's Day, I was gifted some fit socks from Backcountry and Beyond as well. Oh, yeah. Is that your first? I'm wearing them right now. Is that your first pair, though? No. Mm-mm. Oh. No, but my sock drawer is pretty much filled exclusively with those now. Have you guys tried those yet? What kind are they? They're called, they're Fits, F-I-T-S brand sock. No. Oh, oh, for being on a boat in cold weather or any amount of walking, but you're on your feet, like it's not necessarily walking on a boat, but you're standing up all day and they're wool. So even when your feet get a little wet mm-hmm. and I don't know, do you guys wear the Grundens boots ever? Or no, we typically wear the muck boots. Okay, so you wear the muck. So these are yep. these are perfect. So you know how muck slides on your heel sometimes when you're walking. Can, yeah. The fits they fix that problem. No more heel blisters. Awesome. So backcountry beyonds where those are at. So didn't mean to include our guests into the commercial. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Speaking of our guests, yeah, yeah. Let's introduce. Uh, so I've known Lawrence for, gosh, we've known each other a while. Yeah, um, five, five or six years. Five or yeah. six years. Yeah. Um, we worked together um, back at WRC. Lawrence is. Uh, is working at WRC, and you've you've taken a different position since we worked together. Um, your title is now is now Piedmont Research Coordinator. 
Piedmont so. Research Coordinator, and this is Fisheries. Division. Correct, Fisheries, yep. And then we've got Casey, who I didn't know before today, I guess. I mean, have we met? I, if we've met before, I'm sorry, but I, I, I don't, don't think rem- we have. Yeah, I feel like I remember you. Yeah. I'm pretty new. Okay, yeah, well, me too. So uh, <laughs> Casey is now the uh, District 6 Fisheries Biologist, correct? Correct. Lawrence's old job. Yep. Right, okay. And then, of course, we've got Sam here as well. So we're going to jump into it. We've been excited about this uh, episode for, gosh, I guess since last year or a year or so ago when we were talking about white bass and yeah. and white perch and the and the similarities there, Lawrence Lawrence wrote in and and talked to me about it and we actually wound up having a phone conversation later because I feel like I'm a fairly decent fisherman and I feel like you know I've had ichthyology so I should be able to identify some fish and that's one that i struggle with and and i knew that if i was struggling with it the public was struggling with it and when there was a limit that went on size limit and such that went on uh sam and i actually did some fishing and watched a pile of undersized white bass (laughs) uh get put away in a cooler and so lawrence and i started talking about it let's you want to start there yeah please so uh just let's talk about your introduction to white bass and and how uh how you noted the similarities do you want me to start with river do you want me to give locations away that's fine okay it doesn't matter so we were on the south yakin river along some um land trust land anybody who knows the area knows what we're talking about um and we were posting boundary on that land trust land along the south yakin river and a bonus byproduct of our job is we're posting boundary. You got to take your lunch break. So for an hour there, when we took our lunch break, we brought did some, some did some hook and line yeah, sampling. Yeah, yeah, did some sampling and uh, got into some white bass and we're stoked about it. That's the first white white bass I'd ever caught. Okay, uh, and and perch as well. Um, yeah, they were both in there together. Both in there together, yep. and we were talking about it and um, trying to identify which was which. And I was pulling in both and being the first time fishing them, I was holding them and looking at him as I was pulling him in, I was like, dude, I can't. And even if you'd ask me, I'd, I'd be like, and yeah, I'd well, ask Cody and Cody be like, I think, I think that's a, I think that's a perch. Um, you know, and, but we're doing our best to be legal and do the right thing. And, and, um, I guess after afterwards we went back to the office and I just started like reading every article that I could, you know, YouTube videos, trying to figure it out. And what I figured out the best identifiers, and this has been two years ago. So correct me where I'm wrong here. But the best identifier is there's a gap between the dorsal fin um, that you can look to. And it's like, I mean, when I'm talking about a gap, I'm it's talking not noticeable. like a one millimeter gap between the dorsal fin. Um, I think it's the white bass that has that tongue patch. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a rough tongue patch. And that's ended up being the best way that I could try to go. And I'd put my you know, pinky finger in his mouth and just feel his tongue. Um and then the pattern on the side, but there's there's a lot of from what I could tell when you know ever since then is there seems to be a lot of variance in the patterning on the side, so that's hard for me to try to indicate. So what I've really keyed in it on is that that gap in the dorsal fin, and then the the tongue patch. But and, what do y'all? Yeah, what well, do y'all? I learned, well, yeah, I learned from you this what you're gonna say about I think. the trick on the dorsal. Yep. Yeah. So so one of them is that that gap is there, but an easy way to find that gap is to pull that spinous that first dorsal. Yeah. And, and, and if the second comes along with it, then you've got to connect the dorsal. Yep. Sure. Back, you know? Okay. I didn't know that till you told me that. Yeah. And and honestly, you know, we when we first like she she'll be out with Troy Thompson, the other biologist, um, in a few weeks 
doing this. And I would say the first week or so in the first, you know, 50 fish or 25 fish we get in the boat, there's, you know, getting back to speed on looking at them and, and making that distinction. Because in the sunlight, like you say, at times, especially smaller white bass and white perch. Yeah. Because when you get a larger white bass, yeah. oh, you know, yeah. they're easier to tell apart. But, um, yeah, for sure, the smaller fish can be a little bit tricky at times. And, and there's other things that we kind of notice over time, some coloration things. And it's not something that would necessarily hold true. But um, I find sometimes that white bass seem to have like a little bl- bit of a bluish tint to them sometimes when they come out of the water on their fins. That, that Occasionally that, that's something. But, um, and yeah. the, reason, the reason this matters in the first place is there's a creel limit and a size limit on white bass and none on perch so um you do need to to be legal and everything you do need to be able to differentiate between the species um so sorry i didn't mean to interrupt no 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 no. that's a good point and that's that's a change you know up until a few years ago when did that come in i can't 2017 spring or 2018 spring yeah i think that's right yeah Yeah. so so up until then there was no size limit on white bass in the 25 fish creel and now we're 14 and 10 14 inch minimum and, and and 10 fish creel so yeah that was a big change definitely um and that's been something that our enforcement staff has brought to us is there is some confusion in the field from from anglers so we try to do a couple of things we try to put the signs up which yep. we talked you and i talked to cody about the signs and we try to get more out in fact probably need to be it's about that time of year we need to be looking at getting some more made i think um yeah, some get destroyed every year, and then they got to go. Surprisingly enough, at the boat launch where we were talking about, those are still there and no bullet holes in them. So, wow. Wow. Yeah, they're, Surprising. They're mm-hmm. the great signs, too. Yeah, the, those signs, they even say the other thing, which everybody neglects, with the anal rays, cl- counting the anal rays, which is super hard to do on a live fish. But um, those signs, I think, I think helped uh, in, in my fishing, you know, seeing other folks catching the other, turn The other loose. thing you're kind of – we're kind of getting out with all this too that adds to the confusion is that i mean these fish are basically spawning at roughly the same time and in the same areas at the same time so there's a lot of habitat overlap there whereas even if they look similar but they weren't in the same habitats at the same time you know there probably wouldn't be that issue with confusion you'd know well you know this is a white perch because white bass aren't here this time of year but yep. but we see that you know we see that at south yakin we see that on abbott's creek um, on High Rock, we see that on, I think, Lick Creek, there's a fishery for white bass, from what I've been told. Haven't done any sampling over there. Um, and it's the historic one that really isn't there much anymore, but was years ago is the Uwari River. Um, oh, really? Just above the Capel Track property, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. that you guys. They used to run up in there. Yes, huh? yeah, right up there to the falls there to the, where it gets mm-hmm. real rocky. And you still, we still find people in there fishing. And we've sampled it for about five years every spring. Um, and have found very few white bass there. It's, it's mostly white perch. Yeah. Um, I, I've got a video I can send you sometime that shot one time when we were electrofishing up there where uh, there were so many white perch you could just about walk across the river on them. Yeah. Hot tip here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a hot tip. Great, great white perch, you know, place to catch white perch in the spring. Definitely right there on the Uwari River coming out of Lake Tillery is a great place to do We've it. had some of those with white bass in you know around march like you said it's about time to get those signs out you know early spring you're going to start having them in the rivers and um that's a fun fun exercise for somebody who likes to go and catch some river fish but talk about the phenomenon the phenomenon i think i told you about this have you okay go ahead yeah because you know before we get going you know casey's going to be out sampling the spring so she can tell you a little bit more about where they're planning to go because last year covid 
we were just getting ready to do some stuff and COVID kind of wrecked all that. So well, I think for, I think for the listeners of this show, 99% of them are anglers on the yak and chain. Yep. Um, gotcha. At least the local listeners. Now we're worldwide, so I'm not trying to exclude <laughs> all you folks in Can- <laughs> Canada and, and Yugoslavia and everywhere that's listening. But um, as far as locals, we uh, people are going to be tuning in to hear what you yeah, guys and are I finding. Think for us, our white bass populations are almost exclusively on the Yadkin, so yeah. we mm-hmm. don't really have much left on the Catawba. And to speak of the phenomenon I'm talking about, and I, I'm pretty sure you and I either texted or talked over the phone about this, but the past three, and I'm even hesitant to say it on this podcast. We, I, I th- go ahead. That's I don't want saying. everybody to know, but I'm going to tell it anyway. So the past three years on Baden Lake. In like right around Fourth of July, a little the, bit after, yeah, this the, year. the white bass have schooled up by the dam, Old Whitney, and but it's not only that dam. There's, uh, I mean, it's I've heard about it from other people on Tuckertown. I mean, I've heard it from yeah, but nothing Ohio. like nothing uh-uh, like no, at uh-uh. Old Whitney uh-huh. though, where it's thousands of them, and every cast. I mean, they come when they come through. It looks like somebody's throwing M80s in the water by handfuls and they're just exploding and i've never seen that before and i've fished these lakes a long time but the past three years and it doesn't matter really i mean we went up there on the fly rod for two days in or two or three days in a row and smashed 60 70 fish a piece wow. and just in a morning before work and still getting to work on time kind of thing or <laughs> close to on time <laughs> travis <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> pretty close but have you, did you have you heard about this casey yeah, a little bit. Um, last spring, we sampled, you know, the South Yadkin and the Uari. And then, as Lawrence mentioned before, we were, the next day, we were going up Abbott's Creek. We were, like, ready to go. And that night, at, like, 1030, we were like, guess we're not going out because mm-hmm. of COVID. Mm-hmm. And so, that was really crushing for us. We were so excited to get up there. Um, but then, when things kind of dialed back a little bit, we were able to get back out on the water. But by then, it was, like, June. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of like, oh, it's kind of late. But we went in Tuckertown, below High Rock Dam. Yep. And yeah, we were able, to, we were definitely able to get some fish. It was like a little hit or miss, um, but we saw anglers. And I mean, we'd go past people and they'd have a stringer of 15 fish, you know, and we're like, well, got to talk to the enforcement guys. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, we talked to anglers down there below the dam. And it seemed like maybe some of the fish up there at the time were a little bit smaller. Um, this year was, so we've done this for two years or three years, like Cody said, yeah. and Last year, we couldn't buy a 14-inch white bass. The first night, the first night I stumbled on them, we we had some 14-inchers, and after that, it, it dropped off. They were like 13 and a half, all of them. <laughs> However, I think some of the enforcement and hopefully the signs may be doing their job because this year we did have a lot of 14-inch fish. The size, there was improvement in quality and size of fish. That was noticeable to me I agree. A- after hammering on them for two years. And we, you know, we're trying to follow the rules and everything, but we caught plenty of 14 inch fish this year. But, um, I guess for a note for you is it, it seems to be pretty accurate in terms of like the time of year when it seems to happen. And we'll go and check, you know, a few times when it hits to be like get late June, um, heading into July, just go up there and ride and you'll get about a half mile away from the dam and you'll know if they're there or not because it, the yeah. water will be boiling around. So this is, a, is this wow. above the railroad bridge? Yeah. 
Okay. You're t- um, you go like, to the dam. Go past the willows. Like you can see the dam. Where you, when you can get to where you can see the dam, if you watch the water, even if they're running water, you can tell when they're there or not because it's just waves of them coming through wow. one right after yeah, another. Because we were there last June and July, actually and pulling stripers. out stripers and right. yep. some white bass. We caught some stripers in that mm-hmm. in that too. I caught. Uh, matter of fact, um, the boat next to us. Were you there in the morning? The guy caught the uh, the hybrid. And he's like, man, I think I got the state record. You know, state record hybrid's not that hard to obtain, 17 pounds, but it was a, it was an 11 pounder. And once he pulled well, it out, I said, eh. it off. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, it's a great hybrid. I mean, don't get me wrong, that's a great yeah, fish. It is a nice yeah. fish, but uh, it's not it's not the state record. Yeah. But. So getting to your point about, um, you know, when you're finding some 14 inch fish and and the next year not, you know, one thing that's interesting about white bass is they have a very short lifespan. So a five-year-old white bass is a very old white bass. Um, You can go out and, you know, I worked on them in Tennessee when I was in grad school, and that's native habitat for them because they're native to the Mississippi River. That's another thing is they were introduced into these rivers in the late 50s, early 60s, and they've become established. And for the most part, we don't need to restock them. And even when we tried it, it hasn't worked in in recent times. But the initial stockings obviously took off, and they established self-sustaining populations. But... Um, when you look at a, their growth just in the first year, I mean, it's it's phenomenal. But their growth history is such that they they do all their growth in a very short period of time, and then they're either caught and harvested or they just die out of natural causes. No kidding. And then the other thing that factors into that, too, is is they can have some, some good reproductive years and bad reproductive mm-hmm. years. And so when you, when you put that together, compress it out into a five-year time window – there's not like a largemouth that, you know, it's not uncommon to find an eight, nine, ten year old largemouth. So if you have a bad year class of largemouth, there's a buffer in there, right, in all those years. So so it kind of buffers itself out with white bass and crappy same way, you know, that they're, they're very short lifespan too, especially on the Yadkin. Mm-hmm. Um, so so those are some things why you see a lot of changes from year to year potentially. Because it, it just just a little bit of difference in reproduction one year to the next, you know, can can affect that fishery pretty quickly but then the flip side of that is is you get a couple of good year classes that can turn around pretty quickly too yeah and for people listening we that was a good definition of white bass and kind of like their the role and historical significance of them in the region but there's so many different if you're not out there fishing them and i'd like again like i caught my first white bass two years ago or three years ago whenever it was you've got perch you know you got your perch then you've got your white bass then like cody just talked about the state record hybrid striped bass and then you've got striped bass so it starts to get confusing yeah, yeah it's yeah. easy to so would you like kind of do a like what you just did for white bass or casey I'll you let her do it. yeah either one of y'all please for you know you gave a great example of white bass in the region then what's a, what's a hybrid striped bass yeah and give us the if you know the history of each or how they came to be here like start with like white perch and then go to yeah, yeah. white so bass. White perch. When did they? They've been here. I mean. So yeah. So there's yeah. There, so before the rivers were impounded, we don't really have as awesome a records as we have now. So there's a potential, and particularly as you go farther east, say the Noose River drainage at Falls and the the Cape Fear at Jordan, they probably were there when they were when they impounded the river, and, and certainly depending on what time of year you know they were closing the gates and doing all that kind of work. Because um, white perch do move up in the spring to spawn. Um, they're not a true anatomous fish in their native system, but they do stay down in the coastal areas and then come up to spawn. Great word. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah please, please. So 
living in salt water, so, spawning in fresh. Sorry. Uh, no, man. No, I, I love that word. It's anadromous. No, <laughs> use, we love, dude, anytime we can throw this stuff out and act like we're smart, we want yeah, to. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's like salmon. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but the Wildlife Commission actually back in the 60s, 50s through, I'd say, the mid-70s, the model that we lived on for fish management was we did a lot of stocking of a lot of things in a lot of places. And a lot of it didn't work. And some of it did work and wasn't really good or was kind of just okay. And why would say white perch are in that category? If we had to do that again, we did move some white perch around into the yak and we probably wouldn't move them there. But at any rate, they're here. Um, and so they're probably, of all those species, they have the smallest growth potential. Although we do get some decent white perch. And I would certainly say that if someone's interested in catching them, they're great to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a lot of them out there. And we'd encourage everyone to take them home if you want to, because you're not harming that fishery at all by taking them home. And you'd be helping other fisheries by taking them home. Yeah. See, that's the extent. kind of thing we, we can't speak to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's exactly what I want to know. So while we're still on white perch, yep. um, a, a North Carolina Yagan River term for them, the Waccamore, Waccamaw, Anybody know where that came from? Did some dude just call it that one day and it's all of a sudden that's what they are? I have no idea. I have a feeling it, you know, it comes from Lake Waccamaw or the Waccamaw River. But it's funny enough, um, you don't hear people outside of the Yakin drainage calling them that. And really the lower end of the Yakin drainage, up in the northern, you know, up towards Wilkesboro, they don't talk about them like that. Yeah, I'm from Yakin County. I had no idea what a Waccamaw was until I moved here. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things that it took me a while. I've been, you know, I came here in 2000. And I started hearing it, and I'm like, what is that? And, and then I finally realized what they were talking about. Um, so, yeah, so, it, yeah, I don't know where that came from, but it's certainly the term. So, yeah. Casey, if I'm correct here, with the white perch, when you grab the dorsal fin like you were talking about and pull, that secondary dorsal fin is going to come with the primary uh, dorsal fin and be in one full unit. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So. Yeah, and we, uh, Lawrence didn't mention it before, and you kind of have to stare at them for a while, but we always joke, too, that the white bass are just prettier. They're a little more defined. They got those blue fins. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the white perch have, like, this yellowish color to them. They're just, they're just not as nice-looking fish when you're just <laughs> agree. I agree with that. Agree. That's the best way to yeah. define it. Yeah. That, that is, I, I would say that's how I tell 90% of mine apart. <laughs> this fish looks nice. Yeah. This is a white bass. Yeah. <laughs> well, when you're staring at so many over the course of days and weeks of sampling, you know, you get pretty quick, but you'll still get, especially like we said with those small ones, where they'll just look so similar. you got to start counting, yeah, like that anal fin. And, mm-hmm. and I've even had, you know, like enforcement officers bring me a fish in a frozen bag, and i got to sit there and count things and look at them because when they're small they are tough uh, mm. but and that's and that's just one of the things you know they're out there like Lawrence said with white bass and it's important for anglers to tell them apart because you know if anglers catch white perch you know we want them to be able to harvest those fish sure and we don't want them to be breaking you know the laws and things and makes a headache for enforcement and you know all yeah that rolls for down sure to us and yeah, that, yeah that's one of your guys main tools and we'll, we'll get into that a little more after we get off of species but one of your one of your main tools for managing a fishery is putting creel limits and size limits right. on them, and we'll definitely we'll definitely talk about that in a minute. Would it be for a transition purpose? Would it be easier to define what a striper is first, and then talk about a hybrid? Sure. Well, we can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so striped bass are uh, they're their own species. Um, they're a pure strain species. 
Um, they are in their native range, you know, in their native habitat, so to speak. We're in their native range in North Carolina, but up this far, we're not really in their native habitat. Even, even pre-impoundment, I guess we're kind of in that break point as to where they would come to. Um, typically, it's around the fall line. But um, and they are anadromous. They are. Mm-hmm. Yes, they definitely naturally are. anadromous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, naturally <laughs> anadromous. Exactly. So good point. I, I'm not sure exactly, you know, in the chronology of things, but really the first instance of landlocked striped bass was Santee Cooper when they impounded Santee Cooper. Yeah. Now they've in South Carolina. Now they they naturally reproduce there, um, but but it started the whole chain of striped bass can live in reservoirs, and then what started next was the the hatchery folks being able to culture them and stock them into reservoirs and evaluate all that. Um, in North Carolina, we really, that we know of, I'll throw that to caveat, that we know of, we really only have one population or one lake that potentially has some natural reproduction in. That's Car Reservoir, where they can run up the Dan River out of, out of Car and, and spawn, and that does contribute some to the fishery there, although it doesn't totally support it. But in every other case we've got, they're all, it's all of our reservoir populations are stock and supported. So striped bass try to reproduce, they'll run up and they'll hit a dam or they'll hit some you know, barrier. And what really happens is their eggs have to be suspended for I think it's 72 hours, something like that. Yeah, it depends on the river system but that they're in. But yeah, if those eggs can't float long enough and get to that stage of development before they hatch and end up in a good you know, area, that they need, then it's failed, sure. you know, reproduction. Mm-hmm. That makes so, sense. So the hybrid striped bass is a cross between the white bass and the striped bass. Now, right now, this, that combination in North Carolina is male striped bass and female striped bass. There is also a back cross that some states use of just the opposite of a male striped bass and a female white bass. Um, we're, we're potentially looking at doing that. There's a little, there might be a little bit of difference, but in general, they op, they, they, they act the same way. You definitely won't be able to tell the difference. Can't tell the difference between them. Sure. So the advantage of, of the hybrid is that they they don't grow as big as a pure strain striped bass, but they do grow bigger than a white bass. And the one advantage they really have is they have more of a thermal tolerance of a white bass than they do a striped bass. Okay. So striped bass in our reservoirs, we're limited by habitat in the summertime. It gets too hot, and we don't have enough cool oxygenated water for striped bass. So one of the questions we got, and we got this after that tournament, one of the examples that comes up a lot is Tennessee. You know, why don't you guys sure. do what Tennessee's doing? I love where this is going. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, so I went to graduate school at Tennessee Tech. I spent two years in Tennessee. Still have a lot of friends in the agency there. Talk to them quite a bit. Um, I'm very familiar with the systems over there. We'll never have Tennessee here. Not, not in the Yakin. Um, because it just gets too hot in the summertime. Our reservoirs are too shallow. Um, we don't have that cool oxygenated water that they have in the East Tennessee or the Tennessee River in the eastern part. So that's how they're able in the Cumberland the same way. That's how they're able to grow those big stripers. They have habitat, cool habitat for them all year long, and the forage to support them. We have the forage here to put the growth on the fish, which is you know the bait fish. We have that mm-hmm. here, as sure. you guys know. But but we just the habitat is really what limits us here. So you know once a fish as fish stripers get bigger. You know, their thermal tolerances get tighter and tighter. In other words, they need that colder water more and more and, and that oxygenated water. And so it kind of caps their growth off. With hybrids, we don't quite see that cap. But like I said, the growth potential is not, you know, not going to be there. They're not, you're not going to find a 30-pound, you know, hybrid out there. So, um, but hybrids do require a little more effort in the hatchery. That's been one of the issues we're kind of working through is why our hybrid production is kind of where it's at right now is, um, they, they are a little bit more effort to get through in the hatchery. Um, 
Because so, all those fish that are in the hatchery, we have to go collect the broodstock to create those fish. Right. Yeah. And so that's, that's part of the equation. And getting those fish at the right time, getting the right numbers of males and females that are ready to spawn, and then getting them to the hatchery alive. It's all part of the part of the process. If you've ever tournament fished, getting something to the end alive is the hard part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> catching them is the easy part. <laughs> and we we've been stocking striped bass on the Yadkin pretty consistently since the '70s. I mean, Baden's probably the the one that everybody you know is familiar with. But we've stocked all the lakes. The one the only one we're not stocking anymore is Blue Falls. Okay, we did stop that a few years ago, um, mainly because that's not really a great striper habitat lake. Um, there were also some issues. South Carolina, still not sure where they're going, but they, they've expressed some interest in trying to restore the PD fishery. And we could really get down the genetics road here because there's a whole lot of genetics issues. But we're trying anymore as best we can to keep fish stocked in rivers that came from that river. Mm -hmm. now, there's been a lot of stocking in the past that's muddled that up in some ways, but, um, but that's kind of the trend you're seeing with that. And so... In our reservoirs, we don't worry about it as much because they're not native to those systems. Mm -hmm. But in our, for instance, in Jordan Lake, where there's only a straight shot out of Jordan Dam down to Cape Fear, we're stocking those fish with Cape Fear broodstock. So mm -hmm. we're stocking those reservoirs with Cape Fear. So that when they escape out of the Jordan and come into the Cape Fear, they're still those fish. So with, yep. with South Carolina talking about restoring the fishery, um, from the Blue Falls Dam down, that's an undammed waterway correct. Correct? correct so do the stripers the anadromous stripers coming out of the ocean coming out of the atlantic make it all the way to the blue at falls dam or is that what they're hoping to do yeah i i don't think they've seen a whole lot of that occurring um i think and i, I saw one striper in our last survey yeah, <laughs> some, I, have, I have questions i have all the questions uh, there's some there's some stripers <laughs> down there um and they've been collecting fin clips on those yeah. to get genetics that's how we do uh, genetics work you know we'll just we just have a pair of scissors and some vials out there and we'll take fin clips from those fish and then they'll send those off um, to get the genetics done to look at what population they're coming from but we have to collect the fish to sure. get the fin yeah. clips so mm -hmm. that's sometimes that's the hard part <laughs> so and and yeah well again we could go down this for a long ways and get way off into weeds that I, I can't even explain all the way but when she's talking about genetics and fin clips, um, the way that works is we have to have known source population. So all of our brood fish, our striper brood fish in North Carolina that we use, um, they're genetic. We, we take genetic material off of them. So we know the genetics of the mother and the father fish for those. And so if we catch a fish in the wild, we can either link it back to a parentage or if it's within the time frame that we've been stocking, for instance, if it's, if it's a five-year-old fish and it's 2020 and we know we've had genetics for everything we stock, South Carolina's had genetics on everything they've stocked. If it doesn't come back to any of that, then we consider it a wild fish. Yeah. Um, and so, so that's a whole other avenue that really, in my career, I didn't know we that didn't, we didn't we didn't have those tools um, when I started 20 years, not to the degree we have now. Mm -hmm. um, and so, everything we do with striped bass stocking, particularly in rivers, but even in reservoirs right now, um, is we it's called parentage-based tagging, and it's a way for us to mark that fish without marking that fish yeah. we don't have to put a tag in it we don't have to uh mark its otolith with with chemicals which we, we can do um and we can do specific groups like in each reservoir so even if we put fish in a you know upstream reservoir and then they fall you know fall down into the next one um, we can tell like if it's moved over what period of time and then we can also confirm ages based on that parentage based tagging because we only use those parents for that year so if i catch a fish and i go to age it I could, you know, 
agent, we won't go, I don't know if we're going to go down the otolith <laughs> aging uh, way, but we can also look at the genetics just to confirm that that is the actual age of that fish. Know when it was stocked and where. Define otolith. Otoliths? For me, yeah. Uh, so otoliths are ear bones that uh-huh. are in the fish, and the best way to describe it is it's just like a tree ring. So there's rings on the otoliths. The number of rings that are there correspond to the age. Okay. And so it is it is a lethal method of aging a fish. Mm-hmm. You do have to pull that ear bone out. It's kind of like in the brain cavity. Mm-hmm. And um, But we can take them out, and we can uh, look at them under a microscope. It's kind of different for all species and how we have to do that process, but... But yeah, we're able to age the fish that way. And that's a lot of the stuff that we look at is growth and how old fish are, how long it takes for them to get to sizes that anglers want to catch them. So it's like getting away from genetics. Sorry. No, that's, <laughs> no, that's all. Pulled a Fiotalus. Yeah, me. yeah. That's what I was just, I was about to bring up. You know, that's what we were working on. I yep. mean, that's essentially exactly what we were doing. Yep, that's exactly uh, what we were um, doing. Yep. So and that was in Baden. So mm-hmm. yeah, I've, I've, I've got to ride along and, and help pull some gill net and cut some heads and get some Otalus. I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So really for reservoirs and just maybe kind of wrap all this that part of it up, you know, the striped bass and hybrid striped bass are the only species in reservoirs that we're, we're stocking on a continual basis because neither one of them can reproduce naturally in those systems. And so, um, and like I said, we've, we've kind of been at certain, you know, rates for a while. Um, we've got some data out there that we're trying to get analyzed that's looking at the whole striped bass, particularly striped bass, across the state, um, hoping to get that back. We, we sent that out to an external researcher to do some analysis for us um, and hoping to get that back here really any time. Um, and then, you know, we're always looking at what can we do different? Can we do anything different? Um, and, you know, high rock, you know, you talked about high rock a minute ago. We've, we've tried to sample high rock, but the problem we have up at high rock is set gill nets all day long for them but there's so many carp and so many flatheads in there that they just turn the the, the nets into ropes and cody mm-hmm. you, you know when the you, fish you, spins in the net the worst thing you could possibly see is a flathead in your gill net yeah it's pretty, <laughs> yep. well and imagine like 30 of them because that's high yep. rock <laughs> so yep. it makes it tough to catch the stripers and we tried to work some tournaments there and and you know like the tournament you're mentioning there's a little yep. catch and so um so yeah we're a little you know, we're a little bit in a holding pattern at High Rock, but I definitely think, you know, Casey, speaking more to this, probably looking at, you know, some changes down the road, maybe, potentially. Okay. I definitely okay. want to get to more tournaments and try to get that genetic data from those fish. Because it's just, like Lauren said, it's just so hard to sample. Because other reservoirs, you know, we have the dam we can run up to, like we did at mm-hmm. Baden, and, and we can sample below there. And while our numbers aren't great that way, usually, but, you know, we can catch fish and get, yeah. get that data. Whereas High Rock is definitely tough that's right see that see that brings up points that nobody's talking about that's on, you, on they the, answered without you even asking questions you answered you, you answered four of the five <laughs> questions i have this is a, we'll move we'll move from striped bass I'm, I'm just i'm super interested in striped bass no um, it's a good topic so and it's, there's a lot there's a lot of work you guys are doing with striped bass so we can talk about it a lot yeah um, i mean you know it, I think anglers would be really interested to know that you know we have one hatchery that grows all exactly. our striped bass and and so it's four people that, you know, that's their primary job in the spring, among other things. They do other mm-hmm. things there, too. So they're, they're growing American shad. Um, they're growing largemouth bass and sunfish. They're growing cat, channel catfish down there at Watha. Um, but striped bass. Yeah, they bass, did red breast. Yeah, they do, yeah, yeah, they've done really red well. breast in the past. They definitely have, yep. And so, um, so, that, so that's where all of it comes from. It comes from the state. Um, but, yeah, and everything's stocked typically within about the first three weeks of June. 
There you go. And trying to just balance, you know, how many fish that hatchery can produce and where to put them and, you know, getting them spread out across the state. And you don't know that without sampling, (laughs) right? I mean, how do you you decide where to put them? Well, the rates, so the rates have been kind of constant for the most part. We've got a couple places that are anomalies. Baden is is about, depending on how you measure Baden, is about 10 to 12 fish per acre. Um, And that happened back in the 70s. There was a study that the North Carolina was asked to be a part of and we increased our rates and it's just stayed the same um the other one that gets a lot of fish is gaston um Uh and and there's some reasons for that but but most of them are stocked at five fish per acre there's one one reservoir hiawassee out you know you remember that out in the western part of the state that that's actually where the state record striped bass has come from twice the crazy thing about that is is that we weren't stocking striped bass in that reservoir Oh, no kidding. No, no. Oh, so no this were, is news. So so they were coming in probably out of Georgia. Yeah. Um, I think the Nottily River, maybe. I can't remember what the drainage is that drains into Hawassee, but uh, from Georgia. They were stocking striped bass up there. Yeah. And so striped bass got into Hawassee, and there is a system that has cold water and oxygen mm-hmm. most of the year long. So it was a really great place for a striper, and especially when we're not stocking them, now you got low density. So... You know, we've got less than what we would be stocking if we did. Um, there's actually Pal Wheeler, who's a district biologist. Yeah, yeah, you know Pal. <laughs> so Pal taught one of my fisheries labs. Yeah, so Pal is actually uh, he's actually stocking that lake now at one fish per acre and just to okay. evaluate it and see, you know, if it it has the potential to produce some fish consistently. Um, but that's like I said, those are kind of the outliers. Pretty much everything else is at five fish, and then. You know, just jumping over the Catawba just quickly. I mean, Norman was another one for years that we stocked stripers in. We started in 2013, went to hybrids over there because the striper fishery was so poor over there for so long. And the hybrid fishery's done a lot better. Yeah, um, okay. Conditions better. Um, the Less fish, fish kills. Yeah, the fish don't summer kill. So all those mountain reservoirs, are they going to pretty much be the better places for these fish? Um, but they're not all – so like Fontana, for example – Fontana's, you know, what's the word? There's a big old fisheries word here, oligotrophic. Yeah. Um, where it's it's super, it doesn't have a lot of natural resources in it. Nutrients, right? yeah. Nutrients. Mm-hmm. So fish don't grow fast there. Correct. Um, what's the deal? Is there stripers? Are they going to do better in there because it's it's more oxygenated and well, deep? Well, I think the issue there is is you, you probably wouldn't add stripers because just what you said, they're, it's oligotrophic. So there's only, only so much fish if you took all the fish per acre and put them in a barrel at, at fontana versus high rock you're going to have more fish in that barrel at high rock because there's just more nutrients there right so when you take that and you take the fact that you've got smallmouth bass largemouth bass walleye mm-hmm. um now there's one there's one we could talk about too. yeah that you're adding another predator in the system by doing striped yeah. bass that wouldn't be there normally so probably not expanding those there you know that on the Catawba or the Adkin rather, you know, we have the forage to support right. multiple predators out there and still, you know, not be negatively impacting the, all those fisheries. You know, there's, there's a limit there, but yeah. we just haven't, we just haven't reached it. So that's a good thing though. I, I, like, I like, thing. I like that we can, we've got room to play. Um, yep. my last, unless you've got another question, keep going stripers. My last thing on these anadromous fishes that we're stocking, um, so below blue it falls where sam mentioned it's mm-hmm. there it's undammed into the winyaw bay mm-hmm. i say that right sam winyaw bay yep. that's right south, that's sam's right. a south carolina man so i'll make sure i get it right <laughs> um 
so I've, I have personally thought that no, you know, it's unlike the Roanoke where everybody knows that stripers run up the Roanoke and everybody flocks to Weldon and, and Scotland Neck to fish. Got it, yep. I thought, you know, why would it not be the same on Blewett Falls? I know we're coming much farther inland, but why wouldn't they show up? You know, maybe not in March and April, but why don't they show up in May and June? And why aren't people flocking there? And so I've I've gone there not necessarily striper fishing, but I've went down there shad fishing before because mm-hmm. the shad wherever the shad goes, the stripers should go. So and when I'm talking about shad, I'm not talking about gizzard shad, thrifting shad. I'm talking about American shad, hickory shad. Um, do they show up below Blewett Falls? Have you guys found those on the on the river in the PD? American yeah. shad. Yep. Yep. Yeah, there are shad below the Blewett Falls for there sure, are. and most of that sampling is actually done by Duke Energy. Okay. So they've been doing shad surveys every year. Do you know how long? Uh, yeah. At least four years. At least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they go out and look at, look at those fish. Um, they they're mostly the ones doing that. And there is some work there at the dam to look at passing those shad upriver. Mm-hmm. Um, fish ladders and that kind of thing. Sure. Yeah, yeah. To transport like TS trans trap sort. TST trap TST. sort and transport. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I've it actually that moves them up by truck uh, <laughs> above the, well, either way. Above the dam yeah. but um yeah you but yeah, there's the infrastructure you got to mm-hmm. on the dam yeah mm-hmm. so. and that's a yeah. super old dam too it yes. is extremely old yeah um but yeah so there are shod down there um you can catch them and there's just less stripers i don't know if there's really any reason for it besides it is just farther for them to travel up there yeah you know I'm not sure what the historical, I know from our perspective, we, we don't have any survey data from down there and I don't know what South Carolina DNR really has. Um, you know, in talking to their biologists years ago, and again, it's been a while, my perception was that it wasn't a Roanoke river striped bass fishery ever, ever. ever. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so, so that's, um, that's different. Um, and, and so where the baseline is and, and what we could do potentially down there, I, I you know, I don't know. But in terms of American shad, it's considered one of the better American shad runs out there. Yeah. What am I doing wrong? Are they what? Okay. Well, I think it's a different. I think one Americans are a little can be a little bit more difficult to catch than hickories. I mean, I've been yeah, to the road sure. of hickory shad oh, yeah. fishing, and you can just about walk across uh-huh. you know, if they're there. Um, but I think the other thing is that um, that river's you know wider. It's big. It's, 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 big. it's big, and mm-hmm. I just think finding those concentration points is is kind of tough at times, and then. If you get any flow down there, it, it becomes mm. very difficult. It's a dangerous place to fish anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very hard dangerous. to navigate. Yeah, yeah. Super dangerous. In a, yeah. If you it, care about your boat, it's a bad place to be. Yeah. Every time I see somebody down there with a fiberglass boat, I'm like, get out now. Yep. Stop. Mm-hmm. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's probably one of the more. And, you know, for years, up until we got the access at Diggs Tract, Yep. You know, you could put in at Highway 74, and you were on the long ride to Sherall. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Unless you knew somebody. I, I took Sam on the long ride to Sherall one we time. We almost did take the long yeah, ride we, to Sherall, didn't we, buddy? It was yeah, in the, my fiberglass boat, too. Oh, and the trolling motor, ba- trolling motor batteries went out. Everything went south. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, so so now we've got digs, and we've at least got a place, you know, you can pull out um, if you're interested in, you know, going going down there. So, um but it, it, it's a good fishery. Um, there is actually, so the dam's undergoing a little bit of transition, as Casey mentioned, with the trap sort and transport. They are going to have to put a fish trap, their trapping device, and that's still in process. I know she mm-hmm. attends all the meetings as to what the engineering of that's going to look like. But the effect of it is it's going to close that tail race uh, cap- 
uh, catwalk there fishing, uh-huh. but they are going to build a platform downstream, so they are going to open back access up. And it is actually already built. Oh, it is. It okay. is there. Okay. I don't think it's open yet. Um, so that's what that is over there. I, yeah. I saw it. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. I was down there very recently. Well, okay, you probably you've seen still, it sooner so, than so me. So they may have the device they're testing still down there. They may not okay. have moved that the steep pass. Uh huh. But that's not what they're gonna have. I don't think they've still not come up with a design for what they're really finally gonna build. Right for the actual trap store. Yeah, it's like a a door that opens with aeration and the fish go into it. It's already think it's in the process i know that the fishing platform is is just about done and i think the thing with that is it's you're not going to be able to cast straight downstream it's kind of you know parallel to the shoreline and so i think it's going to just be a little bit harder for people to fish from on the anson county side yes mm-hmm. yeah and honestly you know you know kind of surprised it's the catwalk has stayed open as long as it has because you know after 9 11 a lot of these uh federal the dams, dams mm-hmm. yeah, closed access off completely and so, you know, Duke was first progress. Now Duke was kind enough to leave that open yeah, as long uh, as he did. Yeah, as far as Duke goes on on those, as far as fishing resources and being willing to let the public get close to the dams, they're great. Yeah. I mean, I can't see anything bad about it. I've had great experience. No, they, they, they actually got that really good access at Tillery. Yep. Um, and as mm-hmm. part of relicensing, now we have the boat ramp there as mm-hmm. well. So I worked out on the West Coast at huge dams and smaller dams, and you wouldn't you know fishermen they don't care they're like go away this is our business you don't mm-hmm. need to be here Stay so away. Compa- compared to north carolina north carolina is it's very surprising we're pushing <laughs> the envelope huh? yeah I'm, I'm still surprised at how much access there is i'm surprised too and i've done it my whole life it still blows my mind mm-hmm. um okay well you pretty much told me i suck at shad fishing <laughs> yeah, yeah i was about to say when you mentioned um, that and you're like well they're hard to catch i was like that's a that is a personal challenge no, to it, you well i'm still gonna keep going so time of year is it does it vary is it much later than roanoke yeah it's it's gonna be probably about a month later you're well, probably see, looking I'm, at end april or early so May. i've, I've yeah. been doing that part right i don't we know we go out and do the robust red horse sampling which mm-hmm. is a whole nother yep i've been on i've been oh. on a been on a robust red horse sampling <laughs> trip before and you see shad all the time yeah when we're sampling and it's like i want to scoop a couple up but well i we, see them during mission. during the fall even i've seen shad and i also see mullet jumping yeah. out there mm-hmm. all the yeah, time mm-hmm. which is weird okay <laughs> you you hit me with a segue i have a list of questions that i wrote Okay. Um, I told you we've been anticipating this one a long time. I'm excited, yeah. So you just mentioned the robust red horse, and I put up a list, or I made a list. I went and looked through all of our state's threatened, endangered, at-risk species, and that was the first one, just because it's kind of like a macro Mm -hmm. example. Um, I mean, when we're talking at-risk species and endangered, state-endangered species, a lot of what we're talking about is like mollusks. But in that list, there's this giant fish, um, the robust red horse. And I have some stuff about it that I have written down, but I'll let y'all talk about it because it's a very interesting topic. Is that okay with you? Is that cool to talk about? Absolutely. I mean, I love them so much that I proposed the regulation on no bow fishing below Blue Falls. That was me. Mm-hmm. Get some hate mail now. <laughs> well, that was you, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'll, I'll let her talk mostly about them because she's been out doing a lot of the work, but I'll just say that my, my claim to fame when it comes to robust red horses, I was still stationed in District 7 um, in, in Yakin County, well, Gackinac County, Surrey County line, basically, um, and uh, was looking at the job down here was, was going to be open, and uh, the, the biologist at the time said, hey, we got this survey going on that 
you know, could you bring your, we had a jet drive electrofishing boat at the time in District 7. He's like, could you bring that boat down? You know, it might give you a chance. He, he was trying to get out of doing something is what it was. But anyway. Um, I'm sure he, he doesn't listen to the podcast. No, so, you say whatever so. you want. I don't think so. He's been retired 20-some years. So, But, he, but anyway, um, uh, I came down and uh, didn't know anything about the Robust Red Horse at all, really, other than, you know, knew the name and didn't know, yep. none of us knew what it looked like because no one had seen one in person since the 80s and even the people that were there the state ichthyologist at the time wayne starnes from the museum he'd never seen one in person really seen pictures or or specimens so um we were out in the middle of the river sampling it was myself and marla chambers that still works for us Uh that does dot work she was the assistant biologist at the time and uh, yeah yeah marla netted this fish and threw it in the live well and we had another guy from the museum morgan raley with us and he kind of looked at it and he says you know, I think that might be it. Oh, and I said, no okay, way. Timeout, stop. I was like, we shut the generator down. I'm like, we got to go get Wayne, Wayne Starnes, who was the ichthyologist at the time. He was on another boat. And so on the other side of the river. So we got over to him and I said, Wayne, you know, take a look at this. And he about had a heart attack. That was it. That was it. I mean, it was the craziest. It was like, that was the jump off point. That was 2000. That was the spring of 2000. That was a jump off point for reestablishing that there were in fact ro- robust red horse in that stretch of the river that is you caught bigfoot you were yeah that's what i was about exactly mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean and i didn't really think about it a whole lot that day but you know riding back home and then days afterwards i thought wow you know that's that's pretty cool that's probably not how big was it I, I can't remember i want to say it was probably about eight or nine pounds mm-hmm. um if i had to as guess. a biologist so that gives you an example of how big you know when i was saying big i mean they're big fish yeah, yeah it's been a long it's been you know 21 almost 21 years but yeah it, it um and at somewhere i've probably got pictures of it in the files but uh Lawrence, that's a story I haven't heard before. No, that's amazing. That. I didn't know I that either. I thought I'd no. heard all the stories, no, but I haven't no, no, heard no, that no, one no, yet. No, no, no. That was that was Marla and Morgan Rayleigh and I. We just and and it was really. I think it was we, we could go out about anywhere in that jet boat because we didn't have to worry about a problem. Oh yeah. Oh, and yeah. Uh, and so we were working the middle of the river, and she just happened to net this fish, you know, and and. It's funny enough, if you go down there, and you've, you've been down there, Cody, there's a lot of non-native smallmouth buffalo down there. And mm-hmm. so a lot of people say, oh, I've seen 100 robust red horse buffalo. Mm-hmm. They've seen their smallmouth yep. buffalo. Yep. But but anyway, for her to kind of see that and make that connection in her mind, I mean, I'm not sure I would have done that, just being up there. I would have thought I'm so unlucky. There's, I'll never see this thing. I mean, as a to be a biologist and to find this thing, like that's a career highlight. That's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. yeah that it's was... very exciting when you know because <laughs> yeah, there's I'll... just so few right. out there. But I'll, I'll let well, I've still not seen one. <laughs> I'll let Casey talk a little bit about you know kind of what's been going on and where things stand down there. Yeah. So robust red horse, they are um, a large sucker species, so that they've got that mouth underneath, you know, kind of like a carp. Um, and like Lawrence said, you know, for a long time, people thought they were just gone for good and um they were rediscovered i think it was 1991 i think it was i think it was 1991 it was somewhere about, in the late 80s early 90s yeah it was, was i'm pretty it? sure it was the year i was born actually um and it's, then it's uh, a consultant that was down there doing some work and just happened on one i think yeah and they're um only located in the pd river in north carolina they're located in other rivers in south carolina and georgia um and they're just a very cool species uh and they were up farther in the river we think you know before sure. it was dammed oh, yeah. um but but now they're down there below blue it falls dam 
And there's been a group, um, you know, that's been working with those fish, going out and trying to catch those broodfish in the spring and actually take them to the hatchery, raise them up, and then stock them when they're a little older just to try to help that population. Because I think one of the last, I'm trying to remember what the spawning, you know, population, I think it's like 47. Yeah. Oh, really? Total. Yeah, that's, that's the seven. thing. Like, I knew <laughs> there were few. I didn't know there were that few. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we'll go out and if you get like one spawning group in a day it's like hallelujah and by that i mean like one female and three males mm-hmm. and so um you know within a week's work a week of work we hope we get you know a few of those but um but that work is mostly led up by just so people understand the aquatic wildlife diversity section of the of the in, of the uh wildlife wildlife resources commission mm-hmm. and so um we don't necessarily head that work up but we just help out with it wherever we can um and yeah it's just it's such a cool you know species to catch and we do get them occasionally when we go out we're doing other sampling so like we were out doing um some catfish work mm-hmm. and we found one and so if you find one um you know just by chance we'll pull it in the boat and like lauren said turn off the generator stop what you're doing because you want to get that fish you know photographed length weight and a fin clip and get it back in the river as soon as you can. Yeah, sure. Because we don't want, you know, any mortality there. Yeah. <laughs> they don't, they don't. You can't afford it. Yeah, yeah. They definitely um, can't afford it. What I was reading online when researching was like up to 30 inches. Is that bigger? Um, what's like, what's the size? Bigger. Don't. Well, yeah, I, 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 I yeah, I'm kind of at a loss for this because how... I haven't, I haven't sampled that. That one probably is one of the bigger ones I've sampled. I've actually collected two more in my career, <laughs> just incidentally. Um, one was a, just by chance. There was a researcher with uh, USG, USGS, US Geological Survey, that I knew that was down there, and his boat broke, and he called me and said, "Hey, can you bail me out and come down and bring a boat?" And I said, "Sure." And we caught one right by the 74 bridge. Uh, and that wasn't really what we were trying to get necessarily. And then when we were catfish sampling before Casey, you know, before I, I left the position and Casey transitioned into it, um, Doug Henshaw and I at the McKinley Lake Hatchery uh, rolled one up. And one of the things, too, is the, all the stock fish have a, a pit tag, in uh-huh. them, which is just like chipping your, your dog, your pet. Um, it we can run a scanner over it and that will give us some data. And so, uh, on that particular fish, I don't think we had a pit tag reader with us that day, but that's something that they try to carry um, mm-hmm. when they go out in case they happen to catch one incidentally. But yeah, um, we're looking at, at times at how many boats they have out there sampling for those things on a day. Three I think, to four? Oh no. I think the year that I went out that was the most was probably like seven. Because yeah. you got like two Duke Energy, two Wildlife Resources Commission, two South Carolina. Sometimes NC State will bring yeah. a boat out. I mean, it's a big working group. Yeah, the of time people. I went, I didn't get to go on a boat, but I was there at the tanks there at the boat launch, mm-hmm. you know, just in case. Yeah. Um, and they did catch catch some that day, and I got to see them in the tank, but I've never been on a boat. But yeah, there was well, that was what I was impressed about was it was a joint effort with everybody. South Carolina DNR was up here. I was, yeah. Yeah, it's a big effort. And they actually split up the eggs a lot of times between a South Carolina hatchery and a North Carolina hatchery. Not so much for space, but just in case anything happens, you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. But it's it's an interesting species, too, in the case he said, you know, it's geographically restricted, Mm -hmm. um, southern to middle Georgia. I mean, I think now that I'm thinking about it, that date that you're talking about is probably when jimmy evans found yeah him. yeah it's when jimmy evans found it in georgia yeah, in on the Oconee, i believe is yeah. where he found him and so that's about the southern extent of their range 
and then you go up into the Savannah Basin and you'll find them. And then the PD really is the northern extent right. of that range. Right. So you don't find them in the Cape Fear or the Noose or any of those rivers. So um, that that in itself is kind of cool. Um, yeah, that, I think it's that, awesome. You know, you don't find them too many places. And there are some records, I think, in the history books of them being up maybe as far as Winston-Salem pre-impoundment. Oh, you know? no kidding. But, yeah, archaeologists will find them in middens, uh-huh. like Native American middens. They'll find bones that they think are robust, really? of course. Yeah. No kidding. I didn't know that. But they're just, to me, like, the coolest part of them is they're just such amazing fish when you pull them out. Like, they are robust is the name for a reason Uh and like i have the one that i caught when i was still in grad school and i've got both arms all the way around it and it is still kicking me and they were like don't hold it unless you're near the water because it'll slap you in the face and jump out of your arms before you know what happened Mm -hmm. so they are they are tough tough fish and also just that beautiful red color right and then when they're breeding they got the tubercles on their nose and Mm -hmm. That's a, just very there's coolsy. a good term, so <laughs> that's a good one. Say that one again. Tubercles. Tubercles. So if you're a good old North Carolina person, you've called that a horny head before. Yeah, that's yes. right. Uh-huh. <laughs> Stone yeah. rollers have them and, and other species, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, it looks yeah. like they got acne all over their uh-huh. nose. Kind super, of. super neat, look kind of mean. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That That's kind of our – I mean, you guys tell me if there's another species, but as far as in our area, is there another, like – species that has that kind of significance as far as rarity that you guys work with that you guys work with ever yeah so you know we mainly work with sport fish populations. Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, sure so so for us no we don't have i mean i would say for us that that fish would be the american shad Mm -hmm. um, just because it has such importance all up and down the east coast um and we don't like casey says we're, we're not right now we're not necessarily taking the lead on that on the pd but in other areas, we certainly are. Um, but, um, yeah, in terms of the non-game fish, I would I would defer to Brina, Jones, and some sure. of those. And we're going yeah. yeah. to have some non-game folks on later, yeah, and I don't, mean to, I don't mean to take you out of your realm. No, of, it's okay. No, no, no. But you guys, you guys, I mean, you caught the first Robo's Red Horse I had mm-hmm. to ask. Yeah. Um, so That's that, so cool. <laughs> dude, that is super cool. Yeah, I can't take credit. I was just driving the boat. Yeah, I just happened to be behind the dude, wheel. To be, but to it was were there. pretty neat. Yeah, pretty I neat. mean, it's like finding the ivory-billed woodpecker <laughs> kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Traveler Trading Company. They are supplying us with leather goods of all types, but most importantly, the Big Iron Belt, which we named here on this podcast, which I'm not usually a fan of alternative materials to leather. I like the natural product the best, but... In terms of the big iron belt, there's no better way to hold up your shooting iron and hold up your britches. And I've also used it for a variety of other things that belts are not intended for, including hanging my dog by a harness from a rafter so I could trim her nails without getting bit. I trust this belt that much. Traveler Trekking Company is innovative in holding men's pants up. Yeah, all this stuff is made by craftsman Brock Norris. Handmade. Handmade. Charlotte, North Carolina. It's local. And you can go check his his business out and uh, learn a little bit more about it by going to TravelerTradingCo.com. Anybody who listens to this show regularly knows that I am not the person out of us two that should be giving beard advice. That would be Cody. So, Cody, what's in your beard right now? I like Wolf and Iron. Wolf and Iron. What product does Wolf and Iron make that's in your beard? I like their line of bombs and oils, the John Muir line. Well, that tells you everything you need to know. Not only are they local, they're out of Huntersville, but they name their product after conservationists, and they support local conservation here by supporting Three Rivers Land Trust. So why not get the product that's in Cody's beard? Have you seen a picture of it? Enough said. 
Wolf and Iron. You go find them at wolfandiron.com. Again, they're local. Go check them out. Um, let's uh, let's talk more. Let's talk more sport fish stuff. Um, let's uh, let's change gears from anadromous fish and these river based fish. Um, I want to talk lake fish a little bit. Okay. And I, I want to talk about you know specifically the lakes in our Three Rivers region. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you guys go farther than we do, but our region we cover Blue Falls all the way up to High Rock. We don't go as far as as Wilkesboro and Kerscott. Right. Um, so in our in our area, you know, there's you know your main sport fish, largemouth bass, um, you know, crappy, um, and then you know if you want to call catfish a sport fish which i would but mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah catfish and so let's talk you mentioned catfish earlier let's talk a little bit about catfish sampling because i feel like catfish are the red-headed stepchild of fisheries you know at least for fishermen a lot of uh, up until recently they, they did not have popularity as a sport fish and and our yak and chain has kind of been diluted in the catfish world because we've got some fish that we don't need to have they're fun to catch they're they get huge they're awesome and you know you guys know what i'm referring to here <laughs> but um but they're they've kind of really messed up some native catfish fisheries um brown bullhead specifically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so let's uh i know you guys have done a lot of work with that so let's just talk That's about that question. wherever wherever you want to jump in but i'll start by saying you know the catfish species that 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 we catch regularly are flathead catfish obviously which is the one I'm referring to as being such a problem. Right. The blue catfish, channel catfish, and now and then we get a white catfish. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we do catch still a few brown bullheads here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but used to, and I'll, I'll preface this with my little short story of getting into catfishing. So growing up, Yakin County, um, Shallow Ford area, mm-hmm. um, which I know you're familiar with, mm-hmm. uh, grew up catfishing there my whole life, my family owns land very close to the river i mean i could go there before i had driver's license and fish and we would go and catch buckets and buckets of brown bullheads and great little eating catfish and sporty for a kid to catch easy to catch um easy to get bait for yep and then i noticed about the time i went to college they disappeared you could not hardly catch them but we started catching little little bitty short flatheads all the time and some guys had gotten the big idea, at least the rumor was, to come down below High Rock and start catching flatheads and move them up to where they were from. And I, I assume that's how they got there. I mean, I think a lot of uh, fisheries, you know, transportation that's not professionally done is this bucket biology thing where guys think it's a good idea to move something they like catching somewhere else, and it really screws up a native thing. Um, so talk about what you guys know let's start with the brown bullhead and then we'll we'll increase in size i guess yeah so we really don't do any sampling per se on the bullheads and and never really have i mean we've we've noted them when we've caught them in some of our other sampling kind of as just you know presence absence kind of thing um what i can tell you about bullheads is in general is that um the, the brown bullhead the snail bullhead the flat bullhead those kind of fish you know they are particularly in rivers impacted by flatheads it seems like if you if you talk to people that work on flatheads a lot in rivers um and you see a flathead come into the system the first thing they go after are the bullheads um and they kind of extirpate another word they wipe them out Mm -hmm. um they really knock them back hard and then the next thing they start working on are the sunfish um that's why you know casey mentioned Mm -hmm. redbreast sunfish being stocked we've tried some of that in the coastal rivers where they've been impacted um but the bullhead fisheries down there are you know they're they're 
I would say non-existent. You know, really? Anymore. No, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, they're 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 still there. They're never going to completely uh-huh. wipe them out. But flatheads are, you know, they're as as Dr. Tom Quack at NC State would say, they're obligate predators, which means they they want to eat live fish. That's what they mm-hmm. really want to eat, um, and and they're good at it. They're very good yeah. at it. Um, and so um, the history on flatheads in North Carolina, the clip, sort of the Cliff Notes version, is that. We actually brought them into the state in the late 60s to do an evaluation on them at the Fayetteville Hatchery, which is now the Peckman Fishing Education Center um, in Fayetteville. And those fish, when they got done with them, they went and dumped them in the Cape Fear River. No. And from, Why not, right? From, 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 <laughs> place more, from like, you know, less than 25 fish, you established a fishery in the Cape Fear River in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and then you also established kind of a launching point for them to go other places. Now, the Wildlife Commission... Probably moved them around a little bit uh, in those very very early days. This um, is this is new information. Yeah, mm-hmm. really. And, and I and I don't have you know th- th- that wasn't many places honestly that really wasn't um, that we may have moved them. I, I, I and I the may stocking be, records are hard to keep track of too because yeah. at that time it's all paper. But I know, do someone's know. Filing but cabinet. I do know that Wayne Chapman, who's my predecessor, who was from Illinois and where flatheads are native, he actually documented flatheads in the Yadkin as early as 1972. So it's it's highly possible that the Wildlife Commission did not move them there. You know that mm-hmm. they were they were put in by somebody else. Since those early stockings, and I mean very early stockings, we have not moved flathead catfish anywhere yet. They have expanded their range across the state. Right. So you're correct that anglers have, or people, not anglers, people, folks, yeah, have moved them <laughs> um, across the state for various reasons. Um, and so they're established in most of the river drainages in North Carolina. There's a few places that don't have them, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, we like to keep it that way. Um, and in the reservoirs, what we've seen is kind of a neutral um, uh, impact. They haven't really impacted, you know, maybe maybe the bullheads that were there, obviously, yeah, because there, there's some interaction there, but they haven't impacted the sunfish quite as, as much as they would in the rivers. Um, but still they're not supposed to be there. Um, and so while, you know, we would encourage people to go fishing for them, we also encourage people to take them home. Sure. There's nothing wrong with taking a flathead home. You know? Flathead and blues are invasive. They are. Yeah. And, and, you know, with the, with the blue, even the flatheads too, but with the blues, especially getting to be such large size, that's yep. kind of the thing that you've seen the shift in the fishery is people are now saying, well, you know, why would I go fish for a fish that might only get to 10 pounds when I can catch a fish that can get to 90 pounds? Agreed. Blue cat I don't blame them a bit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, but with flatheads, we, we really haven't done a whole lot of uh, work on them. We just, the agency just came out within the last year or two with a catfish management plan um, that kind of covers everything. And really the way it lays out um, is in reservoir fisheries is we know we're not going to be able to get rid of these fish. They're here to stay. There's nothing we can do, you know, just... Mm-hmm. too insurmountable to try to get them out but at the same time we're not going to manage them actively and, and put any protections on them so to speak so that's kind of where they stand speaking with towards flatheads yes okay well, yes. Let's, so go straight to blues let's talk about blues <laughs> yeah <laughs> so blues you know i did some research on them in the late 20 2007 2009 um and uh and so yeah, we did put that that protective limit on that. That was at the request of some catfish anglers. Um, based God on, bless them. <laughs> based on what I saw from my research, is that that regulation probably really wouldn't have an impact. Um, it 
it's not going to produce more big catfish in the system. Uh, what it could do is those few catfish that get to that size, uh, it would prevent their harvest and you know removal mm -hmm. from the system. Uh, obviously, people that are fishing for um, food for catfish, they're wanting to take them home. They're probably not going to take a catfish that large that home and eat it. Generally, they're going for the smaller fish. Um, but again, with blues, I don't see that. I don't see at that point that regulation ever even expanding, you know, as it is, or even becoming more restrictive. I think we're probably about as restrictive on blue catfish sure. as we're going to be. Sure. So, uh, we definitely want anglers to take them home, and taking the smaller fish home, you know, kind of reshapes that population and allows some fish to get bigger. So frees up some food for those bigger fish so it's not yeah, all it's, it's good, not all bad it's a good point it's a good yeah. point the interesting thing about that study was we looked at fish on the the yadkin from baden and we looked at fish from norman on the catawba and you talked a little bit about oligotrophic and talked about nutrients and and norman has way fewer nutrients right. per acre than than high rock does or baden and um it took us about eight years on average difference to get a fish to 32 inches at norman than it did at baden no kidding yeah there was that much growth differential but there again you've got a fish that lives 20 some odd years so um there's a big growth window there mm -hmm. so you have that potential for disparity but we didn't know that it would be that that big but that just goes to show you the difference in forage you know how, how big a role forage plays. and that's and that's what it is that's the difference between norman and here's just forage opportunity yeah it's the base of the food chain. The nutrient levels are higher, and so as that cascades, it all up, steps up. Mm -hmm, sure, yeah. 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 Well, for years, the the state record was out of Baden for several years, yeah. and mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden, this this fishery explodes down east, and you've got car, you know, it's Gaston, Gaston, yeah. Gaston car mm -hmm. chain, mm -hmm. like, but Gaston, yeah, Lake Gaston specifically, right, uh, just producing these giant fish year after year after year and guys that are catching multiple giant i mean zach Roy's caught state records back to back unbelievable but so it's because they've got nutrients in the system right I yeah mean. yeah and it's it's really kind of interesting that we've had these catfish in the system since the 60s and why all of a sudden we're getting the state records oh, over the last my 10 that was my next years, question I, you know it's hard to explain i'll say that i think at baden at least the progression there was a lot of people were out striper fishing and they started Incident. running into these fish when they were striper fishing. And then they said, well, why would I striper fish when I could catch these bigger fish? Mm -hmm. The other thing, and, and Zach's not to say anything against Zach because he's doing a great job catching fish, but Zach's sort of a prime example of people that are starting to take advantage of electronics more than oh, they yeah. have. Oh yeah. The technology's come along. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And so, um, so, yeah, I think all those things, you know, added together. And for a while, when the economy was good, and it's kind of dwindled down a little bit, but there was an act, some active catfishing tournaments, you know, mm -hmm. trails and stuff. Yep. So, but, yeah, I certified the the 89-pound. I certified two of them out of Baden. Um, and then and then when we – because it was, it was Baden, then it went to Norman, then it came back to Baden, and then it went to Gaston, and we've the last three have been out of Gaston, yep. I guess. So. Yep. So the gentleman, the last gentleman that caught it actually lives in Virginia, just mm -hmm. over the line. But, Young guy. Is that the yeah. kid? Yeah, he was twenty something. Yeah. Years oh, okay. Well, then not he a kid. Was, yeah. No, he was a he's a he was a volunteer firefighter. I know because he was talking about he potentially there was some because he used a certain rod. There was a potential that the rod company was going to yep. donate some Those money. Those cat fever rods. Yeah, I think yeah. he, I think so he, he wound up getting he paid. He was going to. I know that because he was going to donate the money to the fire department. He was a member. Mm -hmm. of, so. nice I think you might have to release the fish live as well. Yep. Yep. That, that was there. 
their stipulation. And actually, the 89-pounder, I can say that was released. Really? Uh, Eric Fincher's fish. No yep, kidding. Yep. He, he kept that fish alive and took it back the next day and put it back. Well, that, was, that was actually in my list of questions I was going to ask you guys was certified state records because, well, I've got all these. I've got – we could talk for hours of questions mm-hmm. I have for you guys. Um, but <laughs> – since we, since we mentioned state records, so you've certified two catfish state records. Yep. Yes. Um, anything else you guys have certified state record wise? Oh. God. That so, last channel, I was with you, so Troy did that one. Yes. And the then, channel. Yeah, Troy's had at least one. Um, when I was in D four, oh, I have yeah. green sunfish. A green sunfish. So there's a weird one. Cool. <laughs> cool. That was. Uh, it was actually kind of interesting. It was a young lady that she and her brother and her for family basically but her brother was there with her and she was probably 13 14 maybe i guess and her brother was a little bit older and they were fishing in alexander county but they lived in charlotte and they caught this fish and her she didn't think anything of it but her brother was up on his ichthyology game and said i think that's a green sunfish and so they called us and said we think we have a state you know potential state record green sunfish and they had established a weight on it and all that and so at that point it was just a matter of IDing it and troy thompson and i went out there looked at it couldn't really say yes or no and so we actually took it to raleigh to the museum and they confirmed it as a green sunfish actually if you hadn't answered that i would have answered it for you because i already read that article oh you did did. (laughs) (laughs) i was prepared for you coming (laughs) yeah so that's so and so for the listeners um if you if you do catch a potential state record yes these are the folks in our region that you're going to call yep um how would they go about like i'm not going to give them your personal cell phone number what 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 do they do well so just so they know the records the weights that you have to go beyond are in the regulations digest and they're also pretty easy to find online Mm -hmm. like if you just google it Mm -hmm. so that way you can maybe we would prefer if you would weigh it beforehand if it's possible. So, because sometimes people will call, and be like, "I think I got a state record." Ask them what the weight is, and it's like seven pounds. It's like under. that hybrid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So sometimes it's nice to know a little bit of that background information. But I think the easiest way to find our contact information, well, actually, to find mine, I don't think yours is on there. But if you just Google NC Fish Biologists, a map comes up that shows the districts, and then within the districts, it shows the counties. And so, whatever county you're in, you can see who you need to call. That's Cody's, on there. Cody's dying to give y'all a call. Oh, I've tried. I've, I try every year. <laughs> so one thing I'll I'm say ready, in I'm that ready. whole thing is, is that's really important. I think that really helps the whole process along. Is like Casey said, one check to see if you're over. Mm-hmm. But the second thing is, if you are over, go get that fish weighed immediately on certif- NCDA North Carolina Department of Agriculture certified scales, and the scales will bear a sticker. There's no dead. You know, it has to, doesn't have to be within five years of the data. Where it just has to have been inspected by NCDA. Most of them are inspected periodically. Where is someone going to find so tractor supply? Tractor supply is going to have them. <laughs> they have them. A lot of feed stores have them. So one of the things we ran into with these giant catfish, because for years people would go to the grocery stores because mm-hmm. they do have NCDA certified scales. One, they don't want people dragging these giant catfish. Mm-hmm. Yep. Two, That's why I asked this question. Two, uh-huh. Capacity is not, you know, there. One of the things that kind of popped out of all this is people that sell propane. Propane dealers have to have that's that a you good weigh point. your tanks mm-hmm. on. They have to have a certified scale, and they don't you, care as much if no, you get catfish no, slime no, all over the no. scales. So that so, but but once you get that weight established and you have a witness to that weighing, and it could be somebody that works there, it could be somebody you you went fishing with, whatever. 
then it all becomes kind of academic at that point because then for us we just have to come out and confirm okay this is the species that it said it was and this is the approximate weight in other words you said it weighed 45 pounds but it really looks like like your hybrid you're talking about mm-hmm. you know, it really weighs 20 pounds um but once once we get that but what you don't want to have happen is not get that weight and then you know wait three days to call us or it's a weekend and and we're not able we're not around and then all of a sudden that fish has lost weight mm-hmm. and that that can happen sure. um, so um so i would say i tell people all the time get the weight established get it you know and then we can work everything backwards from there That's- i tell people also nowadays with everyone having smartphones video picture just take all the pictures Document. like mm-hmm. go i mean you could literally videotape weighing the fish and like show the weight on the scale mm-hmm. we all a lot of us have phones now so if you do that if there's any questioning then you can use that as like you know paper your evidence yeah, yeah. I, think that, I think that's yeah. those are great points to all the anglers that are listening we've got some great anglers that listen to this show mm-hmm. someone's going to call y'all they be like <laughs> i heard about how to do this on the podcast yeah, yeah. well I, I know several cases where you know and it's in it's in the news and i don't know if Made, but I actually got involved. My first state record was actually a gentleman that said he caught the state record largemouth out of High Rock. Um, you probably had seen uh-huh. this story. I, I didn't bring it up. I was going to see if you did. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, without going too far into it, um, I think the biggest, it's not really a mistake necessarily, but the biggest thing that happened that threw everything off was he didn't get that fish weighed quick enough on certified scales. And by the time we tried to reweigh it, kind of put it, all the pieces back together again, it was very difficult and we couldn't wind up giving him the record mm-hmm. and and so that was kind of the take-home message when some of the news articles were written not that he didn't get the record it was just that here's what you do if you do get yep. a fish that's mm-hmm. a record and i think it's been helpful i think um we <laughs> i do know that the flathead catfish that was caught out of the noose the state record um those gentlemen uh contacted the biologist at 2 a.m in the morning <laughs> to did, let him know did the biologist answer his he phone? actually did what the <laughs> Yeah, we we've been to know. known to answer the phone at two. Yeah, we do, but we, uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, man. <laughs> he actually went at two. He knew these guys. He knew them. Okay. Uh, he knew knew them already, and he said when his phone rang at two a.m., he knew what his it was. Wife was you know laying in bed next to him and said, "Who in the world is calling you at two a.m.?" He said, "I'll bet it's somebody that's got a state record fish," and sure enough, it was. And he went out and certified it, but. Yeah, um, I, you know, if you call me at 2 a.m., you're going to get my voicemail in case you Yeah, I, I, I silence my phone usually. Yeah. But we do. I tend to look at it over the weekend, especially if it's like a time when I think some mm-hmm. records might be coming in. I definitely check it a few times over the weekend. Is it exci- sure. Is it as exciting for y'all, like, as it is for the fishermen to just, like, that phone call comes through? You're, I'm see sure that specimen? Yeah, oh. I'm sure you're pretty yeah. amped up to go yeah, out there. Yeah, I mean, well. I'm always excited to see the fish that people catch, even, like, I tell people now when they call me, we all have cell phones. Like, you can text me pictures of fish. Like, mm-hmm. I, there's not a day yeah. where I'm like, man, I wish less people would text me pictures of their fish. I that like they that. That's you a know, good like, attitude. You can you can send them along, and, and yeah, I think it's exciting just to go yeah. see them. And it's also another reason. We're, we're pretty busy during the seasons when we're out surveying, but if it's not a busy time, it's a good excuse to get out of the office and go look at a fish. So I'm glad to hear that because part of me would think that – you, I'm, I'm assuming it happens with us. We talk about it yeah, from time and to time. I've got a segue after you mm-hmm. mention this, but go ahead. In the line of work that we're in, and in the line of work that you're in, a lot of times if we meet people for the first time, whatever, like they hear about what I do, whatever, and they're like, oh, well, they like immediately pull yeah, their pull phone their out. Pull their phone out. Like, they start scrolling th- through yeah, their pictures. What do you, what do you think about, about this? Yep. You know, put it right up yeah. in your face. But 
it makes me happy to know that you, you know, haven't got to the point where you hate that or to hate that person no. for putting putting no. their phone in your face. No, in fact, honestly, what she's saying, you know, I, I, I started my career in the pre-cell phone days and, um, you know, we would have people call us and try to describe a fish over the phone and or may, they might could email us a picture, but, but a lot of times it was, you know, and so we'd go out and look at a fish if we had time and we'd get out there, especially on some state records, um, catfish was one and then when we split up the crappy record the record for state record for crappy for a long time was just crappy mm -hmm. and then when they split it out into species black white. Yep. the black it was established that the fish was actually a black crappy so then everybody for about six months thought they caught a white crappy and they really hadn't and we we did go out on a few of those we've had we had people meet us that kind of thing now it's like if someone has a question we just say hey send me a picture um, mm -hmm. of your fish mm -hmm. and if you know one of us can't do it we've got other people that can look at it, or we can bounce around other people that you know their work area might have more of that fish that they know oh yeah that's yeah. a blue catfish or whatever mm -hmm. and like recently there was a case where someone just like really wanted me to see it in person they're like i hear what you're saying but you should really come look at it and i was like okay that's fine like if that's what it takes and you know the second they pulled it out of the cooler i'm like white catfish mm -hmm. <laughs> you know mm -hmm. they really wanted it to be something different and it wasn't mm -hmm. and but then when you're in there in person and you can show them which now COVID it's kind of a little different but yeah you know you could show, we have like you know dichotomous keys that we can use mm -hmm. to show like because of this number of rays in this fin it's mm -hmm. this fish and then people are like oh okay yeah. i get it now yeah and so what did the yeah. person want the white catfish to be oh i got <sighs> I don't Probably a channel. Yeah, I think it was a channel. I'm trying to even remember now. I was just so excited to see it because it was a good size white cat. But um, maybe some kind of bullhead even that had weird yeah, coloration. The, the bullhead record's fairly easy to break. I feel yeah. like if, if you if you spend a summer trying to do it, I think you could do it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think you wanted it to be a bullhead. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. It was a while ago now, it feels like. But. My segue was going to be, I feel like, so when I was – going into the wildlife mm -hmm. career field i was feeling of all the different jobs that there are you know learning how many there are and you know i love fishing i love it and the reason i didn't take the fisheries routes because i love fishing i was afraid that if i just handled fish every day was on a boat every day for work that i would start to lose my luster for fishing i didn't want that to happen so with you guys do you go fishing on your spare time I mean, are you just like, ah, I've been on Baden every day this week. The last thing I want to do is spend my Saturday there. <laughs> um, I can, I'll speak for me and then I'll speak for her. So in my younger days, yeah, uh, before I hurt my back really bad years ago. And then the other thing was when I had my two girls, they like to fish. Mm -hmm. But they, they're play, they've been playing softball competitively. I'm, I'm getting one graduating this year, and I got another one that's a freshman that's the more competitive of the two so i'm still riding that train with her a little bit i coached for a while so my fishing days aren't what they used to be um i did fish some i had a boat i go fishing on the yak and some um, i loved and i still one of the things when i finally get some free time back up is i do want to get back into the hickory shad game on the roanoke mm -hmm. uh, how could you that's, how could you not yeah, yeah that's that's one of the best op opportunities in the state especially if you like catching fish i mean Agreed. if they're there you're gonna have a great day and even if even if they're tough to catch, you still have a good day. Mm -hmm. um, so so I enjoy all that. Um, and uh, I've been fortunate, you know. I got to fish some out in Alaska one time. I fished my in-laws lived in Canada, so I got to fish some up there. They did live in Canada, um, but I don't do it as much as I, I have. But um, 
Yeah, we have the range of people um, in the agency. We have some people that, that don't really fish much at all, and then we have probably three or four that are competitive bass tournament anglers. That, mm-hmm. And are probably then, extremely good at it. And, and we have we have one that actually, uh, he, uh, you know, he, he guides in saltwater. He can't mm-hmm. guide in freshwater because he's a freshwater biologist. But is that a big guide, conflict of interest? It is, yeah. <laughs> so he, he, guides, he guides in saltwater. Um and uh and does a does a bang up job i've actually been with him so so he's out on a boat if he's not working he's fishing and and um and so we've got the range what about you um i'd say i'm a i'm a little bit more towards the don't fish as often as i want i'm definitely not anywhere near being a guide at all but um I grew up fishing a little bit. My parents were never that into it. We were outdoorsy. Like, we Mm -hmm. went camping and hiking, but they kind of fished here and there. Um, So I feel like it wasn't, like, always part of something we did. Um, But I always liked it. And then I kind of got into fisheries in a weird way, getting, like, scuba certified and loving that side of it. And then sort of realizing I didn't really want to do marine fisheries. I actually preferred freshwater fisheries. So I came into it more on, like, the biology side. Um, but I mean, my fiance and I, we have a tandem kayak. We go down the URE catching white bass. So we still get out there. We've been out, you know, on the lakes in Albemarle, still sort of new to this area, figuring out where to go. Um, so we definitely like fishing. I also like, I do like surf fishing and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, kind of out in the estuaries and that sort of thing. Almost... I want to say more than freshwater fishing, but I like eating mm-hmm. <laughs> marine well, fish more th- than freshwater I, fish. I don't think anybody at this table is going to disagree with that. <laughs> I, I would say, too, kind of maybe to flip that around, too, one of the things I got into it because I was interested in fish and fishing and maybe not so much quite the science side when I got into it, but to maintain through that career, you you, you almost have to be as much or more excited about the science because, like you said, you know, it's not – yeah, you know those cold days pulling the gill net in you know that's you got to want to be there to do it yeah, yeah. that's and sense. that's the point like everybody i'm sure you run into people we do all the time they're like god oh, you got the best job ever i'd love to do that spend five days in a row in the rain pulling a gill net every day getting mm-hmm. mean nasty flatheads out when you're trying to catch stripers getting stabbed in your hands and it, yeah and your hands look like <laughs> They look like hamburger meat from because the gloves only last so long. Yeah, and and then you go home and you you're, I mean, it's a great job. Don't get me wrong, it's a great job. It is, but it's a hard job, and people. I don't think people get that. And and the same goes for some of our work. Um, So yeah, I I definitely know what you're talking about. Yeah, and it's very diverse too. In that you know we do a lot of on the water sampling, but we do a lot of computer work too. We do a lot of public relations Mm -hmm. type stuff. and I think the other thing that people don't really realize, too, is so the agency itself, and you know this from your days at the agency, the agency is only about 650 people. That's everybody on the permanent mm-hmm. payroll. 200 of those people are, are lands and water access folks at either technician level or manager level. 200 of those are wildlife enforcement officers, roughly. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the fish division and you look at uh, the number of people we have in the division, it's about 65 to 70. Just And that's everybody. That's mm-hmm. secretary. Statewide. Statewide. Yep. And then when you talk about management biologists, which is what we do, you're, you're in the, let's see, 18, you're probably at about less than 30, you know, yep. for the whole state. That's supervisors, coordinators, and field biologists. And it's a lot of water to cover. It's a lot of water. Yeah. And, um, and so you kind of have to be pretty nimble in that respect. Um, and... Uh, yeah, you have to 
I've, like everybody, you know, you work long enough, you see a lot of transitions. I mean, we, we didn't have the social media and mm-hmm. the things like we're doing today. We didn't have that when I started. We were lucky to be able to get something out on the Internet. And then the rest of it was newspapers, um, those kinds of things. And we did a lot more. I'd say we did a lot more of the fisheries biology back then. I would say we it, we don't do less fisheries biology now. We've just added the, the outreach component yep. of trying to get the information out there because – you know, anglers now are getting using a smartphone even while they're out on the water. And yeah, I can control my boat with my phone. Right. Crazy. Well, I mean, for instance, one of the things we've done, and, and you know this because you've been with us and done some of the work, is, you know, the fish attractor work um, out on the lakes. You know, we've got those, all those, that information on the website now, and you can pull it up on your phone and actually show where you are in relation to the fish attractors on the lake. It's crazy. So, so you know, I, I guess I would have maybe thought we could have done that 20-some years ago, but we certainly didn't have the capability to do it. Yeah. That, man, you you made it easy for me to segue into my last topic. That's going to kind of tie your guys' work with what we're what we do for a career, which is conservation on the lands. Right. Lands. I hate mm-hmm. to see this end. I have so we've got to do this. We're going to yeah, do it again. Just to say point. now, I think this is part one of a <laughs> series. And I know. You're, I mean, like you guys just said, your time is super valuable. So we appreciate you coming. You're covering a lot of water, and it means a lot to come on a rainy day and sit on the porch and freeze and talk to us. So we appreciate that. Um, but I'd love to have you guys back again because I've I've got so many more questions. But um, for sake of time and to tie it together, this is the, kind of the last 20 minutes or so what I would like yeah. to talk about. So you guys work do a lot of outreach. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think people probably don't know, and I know, the reason I know this is because we work together, right. um, is you do a lot to, as far as access. Um, you, you're on the, on the investigative side of finding places for the public to access, which is what we're doing as well. Um, I know this through the Capel Tract and some other things. Mm-hmm. Like this, this includes fishing accesses, boat launches. Um, you guys are the ones that are kind of saying, "This is what folks could do here, and and this is how it would benefit or not." Um, and I don't, I don't think people realize that. So talk just a little bit about that, and you know how that plays a role in your job. I feel like part of the time when we're finding access places is because we're trying to access yeah, a place, that's a great <laughs> and we're point. like, "Why is yeah. it so hard to find a spot to go sample this fishery?" Yeah. And then while we're there, we're kind of like, this could actually work. Um, I mean, you can. Kinda... Yeah, I mean, it, it comes in various forms. Um, if you look at places like Capel and Low Water Bridge, those were properties that you all, mm-hmm. the land trusts, were able to, to get and then turn over to us, which is, I mean, phenomenal. Um, you look at a place like Highway 109 down the Uari, that, that's, a, um, that's a DOT right away that essentially was unused, right? right. Nothing else was going on there. And we partnered with DOT, and we're trying to do that in some other places. Um, so th- those have been good. Um, you look at, uh, for instance, uh, Jacobs Creek on Lake Tillery, uh, where there's a PFA now, public fishing yep. area. Uh, that came through relicensing. And so we got some access uh, built in through the relicensing process that happened over the last 15 to 20 years. So all those have been good. Um, I know you guys are – in. in working on various other projects and i know the tucker town project it's it's number one in my heart just because i, I go out there all the exactly. time exactly and, that, and that's what i was going to get at. yeah sure. and i mean so we're not we're not getting any more land or water really um and so we're trying to provide that access where we can and like i said you know we do lose things from time to time which is unfortunate mm-hmm. but wherever we can find it and and honestly in this district 
we probably haven't done near as much as um, the next district up, District 7. Ken Hodges has just been a true champion for access on the Yadkin and has gotten mm-hmm. several more Yeah, accesses. a lot of new stuff since I've moved right. away, I mean, on the actual Yadkin main stem there. Right. But, I mean, we are we're, – we're, we're working with y'all is so great is we're constrained by funding, obviously. Um, we're constrained at times by process. You know, there's there's only so – there's a process yep. we have to follow to procure a piece of land, as you well know. Yep, the timing is sometimes critical to acquiring a piece of property, right. um, especially from a private individual. And, and that's that's where the state can be held up. And, it is, yeah. And we can help. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And so, so you know, there's there's that component of it. We, we did, and we've kind of reached a little bit of a plateau but um, in terms of this, but not to say it won't pick up back up again, but – um, a lot of the urban ponds and community ponds, we still stock catfish in, yep, but we also I provide... We, I meant to talk about that. No, it's yeah. okay, but we also provide... Uh, we did provide at one point in time as part of that uh, a pier. Um, we still have that opportunity for them to purchase that. We just don't have the funding available to do that as much okay. as we used to. But that's still out there. That was a big deal. When I was when I was on with you guys, we built, I don't know how many uh, PFA piers on, on community ponds. I mean... Tons. I don't know. How, I can pour it a butt with my eyes closed now. For a do- I mean, I've done it so many times. Did you do the one at Dan Nicholas? Were you involved? Well, I didn't in do Dan Nicholas. Okay. Uh, the last one I did was in, uh, gosh, some little little park. I can't even remember. Henderson, Hendersonville. Oh, okay. Hmm. That was the last one I did. Fox, Fox Pond, PFA. Fox Pond. That was the okay. last one I did. Or maybe that was just Henderson. Henderson, maybe, yeah, yeah. yeah. Vance County. Yep, Vance County. Yeah. Yep, Fox yep. Pond's the last yep. one I did. Yep. yep. Yeah, I mean that was big, and like I said, we've kind of plateaued out on on adding sites right now. So, but yeah, I mean all that's important. And then, like I just mentioned, um, and I'll let Casey touch on this because she's going to be doing a lot of this coming up. Is the habitat work we do? I mean, you're familiar yep. with, you know, the habitat work, and I think a lot of people are food plots and, and yeah. This is great. See, I had a I had a stuff. question. I had a list of questions <laughs> on this. We, like we, a, we did have a whole. I'm going to let more. you talk about the habitat <laughs> stuff that we have done and are going to do. Yeah, so we do a lot of habitat work. Um, Part of it, you know, going back is those fish attractors and getting those out there. And that's kind of, I don't want to say easy, but it's kind of cut and dry. The other part of the habitat work we do is um, aquatic vegetation. And so getting vegetation out there, um, we actually have the capability to grow a lot of that vegetation. Um, But it's finding places where the vegetation will grow and we can put it. Um, cause sometimes homeowners aren't stoked about that in yep. their backyards, but, um, you know, we really want to get that vegetation out there cause it helps the fishery so much, um, and just improves angler satisfaction, I think also. Um, and so things like water willow, pickerel weed, um, you know, we have the ability to bring those out to the lakes and we create little exclosures, keep the turtles out and, we plant inside of those, and then the hope is that they take over those cages and also move out, and then they're a source population, so sometimes those seeds can float downstream and, and get to other areas and kind of, like, seed the lake with what are with the that What are the vegetation. benefits of those? Well, I think, um, you know, it's just such a – it's a good habitat for the fish mm-hmm. to come into, and, sure. and I know there's a lot of people that like fishing those grasses. Yeah. Um, so that's really good, and then it's just like a refuge for those, you know, juvenile fish mm-hmm. as well um, so that they can grow up and have a have a chance. Structure. Anything else yeah. I'm missing? No, also yeah. provides some shoreline stability, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that as well. Yeah, that's a good uh, point. I was, I, yeah. I, I, which yeah. is kind of where, where we come in on some of our conservation work is just – you know, you don't have a good fishery unless you've got clean water, and you don't have clean water unless you've got good runoff that's clean and being filtered 
through natural vegetation. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So that's a great point. Um, as far as invasive species control of vegetation, is that something you guys so do we, very much? We're a little bit in on that game. That that normally comes to the state division of water resources. They have a group over there. Um, where we kind of tee into it is uh, through grass. There's grass cart permitting mm-hmm. involved. The Wildlife Commission has statutory authority over that. So. Um, and then we also participate in management teams, uh, even if it doesn't involve grass cars. So, okay. And you can talk a little bit about, you know, like at Baden and Tuckertown and those places we've been. Yeah. In. So we have, there's just, uh, different working groups that work with, um, you know, whatever entity. So cube hydro or whatever they're called yeah, now, the name keeps changing. What are they now? They, they, it's, it's a good question. <laughs> Eagle Creek. Eagle, Eagle Creek. Eagle That's Creek. right. Yeah. yeah um, Eagle Creek Hydro. So we work with them in conjunction with DWR, Water Resources, and then um, just a larger group. And then a lot of the work is also done by, um, or in some places, is done by NC State. And so they'll mm-hmm. go out and do surveys to look and see where, you know, where Hydrilla, where's Lingvia, where was it last year compared to this year? Is the acreage growing? Is it shrinking? You know, did we stock grass carp? Should we stock them again this year? So there's a lot of those things and, and meetings that occur to try to decide, you know, how to manage those invasive you know aquatic vegetation species and and uh and do it in the best way possible but in terms of the habitat work you know that that solely falls on the wildlife commission um to do it now we do you know we we've worked with the predecessors of eagle creek uh, from time to time um to get like cutting cable trees and Mm -hmm. permission and that kind of stuff um but like casey said you know all the vegetation planting is done by us and we now have a hatchery, an aquatic plant hatchery in Bevin that okay. we can grow and culture plants. And, That's uh, super cool. And so, and, and all native plants. Um, we're blessed on the Yadkin, with the exception of High Rock, and High Rock has water level fluctuations, so it's been tough to establish vegetation there. But, you know, Tuckertown, Baden, and Tillery are just, you know, full of water willow. And that's yep. not anything we did, you know. Um, so uh, adding vegetation there probably isn't really necessary. We've tried it at High Rock. We'll continue to try it at High Rock. Um, as you probably, I don't know if you were going to ask about this, but, you know, one of the big challenges we have right now is she mentioned lingvia, which mm-hmm. is black mat algae. It's not really something that's easily controlled, um, and it's not really easily defined as to why it's expanding. You know, Tuckertown has is, is got a big issue. Tuckertown's tough, man. It's, Tuckertown's almost, unless you're a bass fisherman that finesse fishes a weedless worm, that's a hard place to fish. Yeah, yeah. And it's something that we're looking at. I mean, something that I say we, the collective group of people that she just mentioned that are they're looking at is what, what can we do about it? And it's funny, it seems to be constrained to Tuckertown, which is good that it's not in the, you know, the lower There's a little legs. bit in Baden now. You see it in the backs of coves, particularly where you get a lot of concentration of nutrients and not a lot of flow. Yeah, mm-hmm. yep, so. I'll get it on my throw net sometimes catching bait, which is a issue there. But, uh, yeah, um, I think... I think that's something that people don't realize is it's funny you mentioned Powell earlier you know he said once that uh you know fisheries management is not just putting fish in and taking fish out which I, I you know as a student originally that's what everybody thought you know well yeah. what can you do so there is habitat management just like managing for you know your terrestrial animals we're always well. taught mm-hmm. it's just going to ring a bell with her we're always taught that it's a triangle that it's people fish and habitat yep and like my old advisor said, you know, when you get into it, you think the fish are the hardest thing to manage, and really it's the people. Yep. You know? um, We're balancing yeah. a lot of wants and needs <laughs> from yeah. people. Yeah. Sure, including these two guys sitting out here, me and Sam. <laughs> I mean, well, I think that's like the, the blessing of us having you here 
and for all the people listening is and it has a lot of parallels to our job where there's there's so many irons in the fire and so many things happening and um just because of the way it is we're we're all understaffed and we have so much area to cover and if we could i mean we because we love the resources and y'all love the resources we'd like to do everything right. i mean mm-hmm. if i had if i had the ability to do everything i'd do everything cody would do everything y'all would do everything but just based on our conversation here and the amount of things that y'all are doing I mean, we wouldn't even get through the questions I no no not, <laughs> I, not even half not even yeah. half but um you know, I think it's a testament to how hard y'all work and the good work that you're doing. And um, hopefully people listening will understand to thank their wildlife biologists next time they see them because yeah, y'all are working your tail thank off. Thank your fisheries. Bio- We've got, an, well, I wouldn't say undertapped resource in our fisheries, but we do have a gym in North Carolina as far as fisheries go. Um, and to the... I wouldn't even take it personal. This, someone that said strippers in Tennessee, just... Yeah. We've got so much other stuff, though. Right, right. Um, don't get me wrong, I like catching a big striper, but it's we've got a great fishery, a great fishery, mm-hmm. and it's statewide, mm-hmm. and it's thanks to you guys and everyone that's doing those jobs just like you across the state and, you know, the 18 or so management yeah. biologists. I mm-hmm. mean, it's impressive. It is. And uh, with that, I want to leave the listener with a with – a, they've set through some of the science, they've set through some <laughs> of the more – you know, things that Sam and I might be interested in that the listener may not be, which is, you know, like the breakdown of the different species yeah. <laughs> and the robust red horse, which you shouldn't be going, you should not fish for that fish. Please don't. Leave it alone. So to give the, the angler something to take home, break down by species, the sport fish and the lake or area that you would that's, say to go target so that is I'll, so I'll funny you. you that you i was just about to so and don't you ahead. don't have to be specific but so for largemouth bass in your region what what's a what's your number one pick if you were going to go fishing and tell somebody uh, where to go Loris has just been around longer so i want him to, <laughs> I yeah. only got to i've only got the past two hmm. years i would have to say probably baden to be, be honest with for largemouth okay yeah, for large yeah. mouth. i was yeah. leaning tucker town but okay yeah baden and, and 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 really when you get baden large or tucker town high rock to me and even tillery there's there's very few lines of degradation. I mean, it's it's close. Did you guys? Uh, I, I shouldn't even bring this up. This is off topic. Were you guys mad when we brought Major League Fishing, the TV show here? No. So it brought a ton of publicity to the to the region, and those pro anglers said, I mean, they were so complimentary of your yeah. guys' work here. Yeah. Um, and it was a weird time. It was the drawdown at Tillery when they fished it. But they, you know, they obviously they slayed them because it was like catching fish in a mm-hmm. in a fish tank at that point. <laughs> but um, they uh, they they were so impressed with the size of fish, and uh, so I think that's a testament to your guys' work because they fish nationwide. Mm-hmm. Um, so largemouth bass, we've got that one. Okay, let's say uh, crappie, both white and black. If you're looking for white crappie, um, you're really only going to find them in any numbers on High Rock and potentially Tucker Town. Sure. Um, if you, it depends on what you're interested in. If you want to catch a ton of crappie, I would say high rock. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we taken the size limit off up there a few years ago, and I think that's helped. Oh, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, super great idea. But if I was, if I was looking to catch size and not really numbers, I would probably say tillery. Agreed. Yeah, I agree with you 100. percent um, Sam, you got a species you want to ask about? You know what I'm going to ask next? Yeah, go ahead. I know what you um, want to ask. Big catfish, flathead first. Where would you go? Uh, it'd probably be a toss-up between High Rock or Tucker Town, but I'd have to give the lean to High Rock just a little bit on that, on, on Flathead. Okay, Blues. I would say Baden. Baden. Yeah, yeah. With, with Tillery actually, maybe not as far behind as you think, but Tillery second. Yeah. I agree with both those statements. 
Sure. Go down there below blow blew it <laughs> if you want to get out on the river well, yeah true too. if you yeah. want to if you want to risk your life but catch a catch a giant that's, <laughs> look there are a few guides that absolutely catch giants down there and i'll go down there too but that's a, that is a dangerous place to fish that's a daytime your first trip you mm-hmm. need to take some daytime and you need to check the flow levels down Correct. there yep. yep i think i think white bass would covered pretty well um south yadkin so mm-hmm. far is where we've yeah. seen Yep. And then you probably my, know the exact spot. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I, think, I, think, I think everybody that everybody knows that exact spot. Yeah, yep. that's where we bend in the river. <laughs> yeah, there's only one place to go. <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's where we took our lunch. Break. And when you get and when you get there in March and April, well, turkey when turkey season's coming in, when you get there, you might as well be prepared to fight to get that spot, mm-hmm. that good key spot right yeah, there. That's true. Yeah. Um, and then my question was kind of very similar to that. It's funny you asked it, but take all those together. What is the underutilized, underappreciated sport fishing opportunity, lake or species or both, that you're like, mm. I can't believe more people That's don't a good question. I can't believe more people don't do this. This is awesome. That's how I feel about the white bass mm-hmm. um, in July. Like we get out there and there's boats out there, but I mean, I would see people if they knew what was happening, people would fly from Oregon. To come fish that that's how good it is so are wow. there is there something is there something underutilized that you're like mm. i can't believe people aren't doing this yeah i'm, I'm trying to think uh i almost would say when we went up abbots i think because they get schooled there the white bass get schooled up in abbots so maybe it's a little harder downstream but there was a lot of area that seemed very fishable mm-hmm. <laughs> that okay. no one was there. And I think it's cause That's it's, it's point. so hard. <laughs> yeah. It's so hard to access, you know, to uh-huh. get in there. But yeah. once you do, you got a lot of, you know, stretch a river. That's just a Creek. That's open for you. Well, we didn't, we didn't touch on it, but I would say, cause you, you didn't get to this species, but that's okay. I, I'll get to it in my way. I, I would say that, you know, historically on the Yadkin, when we talk about striped bass, people first think about baiting. And then probably second, high rock maybe, just because of the size. But for me, if I was really wanting to go striper fishing on the yak, and I would go to Tillery. Mm-hmm. Um, that's yeah. that. That's kind of the one that it, I, I think there are people that definitely fish it, but it probably is not one that you know jumps off on any list necessarily. Yeah. So I think people that fish it know it. But our survey data down there is as good as any that we have. So um, for, for stripers on the, on the Yadkin. I would also say, too, that, you know, if you're just looking to kind of get totally out of the way of people, um, and it's a very localized fishery, um, crappy at Blewett Falls. Um, that's another one. Uh, Blewett Falls is an interesting place. It's, yeah, again, it's, it's not super strange for the Piedmont, North Carolina. <laughs> yeah. It's not quite as dangerous as, you know, below the dam, but it's still one of these places that you're not going to put your $45,000, $50,000 bass boat and lay the hammer down because mm-hmm. there's so many rocks mm-hmm. in the lake. But if you're willing to go out and, and you're definitely going to be away from people, there's very it's few very houses, quiet. Very yeah. quiet. Yeah. It's a weird and it's 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 like a little bitty Santee Cooper, like it's the the way I fish it. I fish it the way I would down there. It's mm-hmm. just shallow and and mm-hmm. and just an odd lake for the Piedmont. Mm-hmm. I like to think there's somebody listening right now, who is like a striper fisherman out on Tillery, <laughs> and it's just like screaming at their, <laughs> at the it's time, happening. Like these. It's SOBs happening. are giving up my spot. I hope there's somebody well, out there who's furious But if you if you fished it in the spring at all and you, you run up by, by Mara Mountain and try to catch them on artificials and, and top water and stuff, then you it's the secret's out up yeah. there. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. 
you get up at, at 4 a.m. and there's still 20 boats up there with you. It doesn't matter. The um, more I think about it, I'm getting a little sick to my stomach. All this talk we did about our white bass spots and stuff. I mean, well, it's like, I want to trim it out, yeah. but I, I won't. I'll put in, and it's not by any means a blue ribbon fishery, but it's a unique fishery to the area. Um, and that goes along with you guys' property at Low Water Bridge. Is that I small amount of bass in yep. Yuwari. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um I don't think they'll ever going to be, you know, like a northern smallmouth fishery again because that river just gets too hot in the summertime mm -hmm. and, and the water levels drop down. But in terms of if you're looking for a place to catch something different that you're not going to catch in really any of the lakes, yep. um, that's a neat fishery. And and like I said, now that we have we have access at Low Water Bridge, we have access at 109, and then we have access down at the Capel Track. There's plenty of opportunities there where 25, 30 years ago, those opportunities weren't there. Yeah, you had to know missed. somebody. That's a great yeah, point. Right. Or you wanted to hike in through the Forest Service property, mm -hmm. there, um, drag a canoe through there. Yeah, you guys, so I guess it would be District 7. So just out of your district, there's some phenomenal Yagan River smallmouth yes. fishing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, guys are, you guys are all around the smallmouth as far as North Carolina goes yep. in the Piedmont. That's a and I would love to sample one. them in the yard, but it's just such a hard place to get into. Especially with a boat, yeah. Yeah. yeah there's absolutely. I mean, I guess if it was low, low water, you could backpack shock it, but we tow barged it before. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, but the problem with that is is that you get in those deep holes and you can't. You're either in a well, Electricity can't or, get all the way or, down. Yeah, there's not enough power yeah. to mm -hmm. shock the fish. I bet you low water bridge is underwater right now. Well, we've had a lot of rain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk about a popular place. I mean, that's been one of the like you know most popular places that I've been associated with around here. You know, it's I unbelievable. Think I, I hardly ever go over there. There's not somebody over there using it for something. Now, yeah. this time of year might not be as much, but in the warm weather months, for sure. You see it all at Low Water Bridge. I spent plenty of time picking up the trash there, and now there are plenty of respectful folks that use it too. But yeah, it's a it's a popular spot. Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. You guys have anything that we didn't talk about that you're just dying to get off your chest? Um, yes. Or you want to talk about? <laughs> yeah. No, I've, got, I've got a million of them, but so I, I know I, I can't. Unfortunately, I have to leave here in a few Yeah, minutes, that's why but, I'm trying to wrap but, it up. I know you but, got a million. But I would put in one plug um, for something to talk about. We talk, kind of touched on this in various ways, but something that we're both dealing with now a lot Um is the movement of Alabama bass. And mm -hmm. again, we could probably spend a whole hour yeah, on that. I, That's another thing I wanted to talk about. Yeah, and so we, we have unconfirmed, and I say unconfirmed in the sense that we haven't put our hands on them yet uh, out of Tillery. Um, and so if, if, in fact, they're in there, then, you know, we're kind of on the ride now to figure out what that's all going to mean because we, we're seeing it in various places across the state. Um, what I would say about it is, is that Alabama bass, at their best, really don't – and in my opinion, enhance a fishery and at their worst can do some serious damage. Sure. And we're seeing that in places. Really? Yep. Yep. Definitely. And, um, and so I would ask, you know, your listeners, if you catch an Alabama bat or any bass, really just don't move it, either take it home and eat it or throw it back where you catch it. Okay. Um, yeah, it, it's one of those two things. If it's legal to take home and you want to take it home, please do. And if not, just throw it back where you, you know, I don't know that it's, it's malintentions of people moving these fish. I think, you know, they think they're helping at times, but they're not. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just just to give you a quick breakdown, and again, we'll, we won't spend too much time. But the two impacts we see is in fisheries that just have largemouth bass. Alabama bass have the potential. They don't always do this, but they've done it at Norman. They've done it at Belize, to where they they basically run the largemouth out of the habitat. Um, if there's any kind of ho ha habitat overlap between the two, Alabama bass seem to win. And where you find largemouth and where you find them at Norman now is way pushed up in the backs of creeks that are more what you would consider a true largemouth habitat. 
um, more turbid, uh, some aquatic vegetation, uh, those kinds of things. Clear water, rocky substrate, Alabama bass love that. Really? Okay. So there's that aspect. But probably the more serious aspect is for those far western fisheries that have smallmouth bass in them. And what we're seeing there is not only do they outcompete, but they interbreed. And so you're seeing, like at James now, you're seeing these people catching these what they call mean mouth, which mm-hmm. are hybrid between the two. It's a good name, though. <laughs> it's kind of cool, but unfortunately. You eventually uh, lose your smallmouth fishery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, eventually yeah. they just outcompete them, and there's no more smallmouth. And George has seen that. Yep. And we're in that process now. At I had no idea that had come to the Yagin Lakes yet. Well, so, yeah, so we stock, the agency stock spotted bass in W. Kerr Scott in the 70s. Spotted bass. Now, there's a difference. Yep. There are different species. And when Ken Hodges, the District 7 biologist, did his surveys in the early 2000s in the Yak, and they found them within a few miles of High Rock. Now, mm-hmm. I've never found a spotted bass in High Rock sampling. I've caught them above Idle's Dam. Now, that definitely you would okay. catch them there. Yeah, okay. definitely you would catch them there. Um, but I've never caught one in the lake. Um but Alabama bass have now been put in Kerscott too. So now you have spotted bass and Alabama bass. Um, but until recently, we hadn't had any records of them. And where we're seeing them now is anglers are catching them in tournaments. And when you see the tournament weigh-ins from Tillery, we're seeing them in pictures. We see them on social media. No kidding. And send each okay. other pictures and go, uh-oh. Yeah, and, and I know one guy that, that fishes tournaments. It's a, a water quality specialist with a municipal agency that I, I trust a lot, and he's telling you me. You know, he's knowing what he's identifying. Sure. I've got a quick question on that. I know you got to go. Um, a few years ago, I went and fished in Yellowstone, and they required you to keep and get rid of non-natives, rainbows, browns. There's no case of that that y'all deal with where you require somebody. And if there was a uh, species like an Alabama bass or something, would is it something that the agency would consider? Like, I want these out. You have to. You have to take them. So we've already done that with Alabama bass in a way. Have, and okay. that is and that is spotted bass and Alabama bass. There's now no size or creel in it's open mm-hmm. season. Open season. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, we can't require anyone to take. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And I, I we've never done that. Yeah. Uh, probably the only. The only time we've ever suggested that, uh, strongly suggested something like that, was when the snakehead snake thing started. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, we did, we did, you know, do that, and so we we asked people to do that, and we didn't. Thankfully, haven't gotten them yet. Hopefully, yeah. never will. But um, but in terms of Alabama bass, what we tell people is, please take them out. Yeah, take them home. And yeah. We're fighting against, you know, with bat, largemouth bass and and all bass fisheries. You know, there was that everything in the 60s was taken home and eat it and then they went to the catch and release ethic which helped out a lot but that pendulum kind of swung the opposite direction um, and we'd like to kind of get that more in the middle where people will release fish but they'll also take some home sure so, some harvest can be very beneficial yeah, yeah. agree if you've ever owned a small farm pond then you should know yeah. that yeah. yes you need to you need to take some fish out yeah yeah uh, that's that's great. Anything anybody's got uh, to add? Yeah. I know Lawrence has got to go. <laughs> Lawrence, I'll, we'll talk later, man. I, I, I hope y'all come back at some point. I've, I've got a pile of questions. But, I, again, thank your, thank your fisheries biologists, and um, they well, do a lot all. of great work. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you, you. If you like the content and you'd like it to keep coming, you should still know that this podcast is just one of the tools that we use here at Three Rivers Land Trust to further our conservation mission. Our number one priority and purpose has always been to conserve land and natural resources for future generations and to be a voice for wildlife to ensure that they have habitats forever here in North Carolina. The podcast is just a byproduct to further that mission. To be a part of the team in the fight 
for the conservation mission, you should visit our website at www.3riverslandtrust.org.